You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Doing it, by the way. Yeah, I'm not. I I like that. Um, (laughs) I mean, I was going off. I was doing my whole shebang. I was getting going. Anyway, this is your first episode of the GGTMC. We are not that unprofessional, but this week we are. How about that? Yeah. Welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. We are back. We hope everybody is having a good time, enjoying life, living the dream, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. But uh, yeah. the show is back for another week. Well, this week, we're having a little bit of fun. Uh, you may, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you may not know this, but I'll say we kind of give a, a gentle recap. Um, last week, Todd reached out to me and said, or a couple weeks ago, he said, I'm thinking about doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And I was like, I like where your head's at. And uh, we decided to go ahead and make it a double deuce. So you got back-to-back double deuces this week. Uh, we hope folks are excited for that. So that's what we're doing this week. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Um, for some reason, I wrote down 1986, but that's for actually the sequel. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, 1986. So I was like, wow, when did uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre come out in the 80s? I don't think it did. Um, Toby Hooper directed both. Um I would say even if you haven't seen these films and you're listening to this podcast, you've heard of these films. That's the kind of title the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. It's kind of ubiquitous with the horror genre, you could say. It's one of those great moments in cinema history where a title means almost as much as the movie itself. When you think about it, you know? Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, I want to give everybody a heads up. Uh, some episodes may start coming down. I've uh, been reached to take certain things out of episodes, <laughs> uh, copyright-wise. Um, never had this problem before. Well, that's not true. I've had this problem before in the past, but we've always only been on one service. So I just could keep it short and sweet. We may 
take it all down and relaunch the show or we'll see what happens. But, uh, yeah, if you want the episodes in your collection and not accessible via streaming service, uh, I wouldn't use, I'd use a site where you can download the episodes and that way you can have them, but it's a headache. Um, but it is what it is. Um, right now they're up. We'll see what happens. Uh, but that could change on the daily. Um, Get them but, while they're hot, kids. Yeah, but it makes it easier for me because I've never really, honestly, cared for all the transitions and everything else. So now when you hear the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, what you're going to hear is is our intro. We're going to talk about uh, movies and uh, we're going to do voicemail uh, if we have it. We have one again this week. Walter, he's become our number one fan. <laughs> and uh, we're going to cover the movies and uh, we're going to move on. And uh, that's the way the show is going to be. Now. Don't get down on it and stuff. You still get the content. You still get Todd and us uh, laughing about everything that we laugh about that nobody else thinks is funny. So that is the show in a nutshell. So you still get that. And you still get us talking about movies. So the gist of this podcast is still there. You just don't get uh, music from uh, such big names as, uh, you know, whoever. So it's not the end of the world. And I don't feel that way. It just uh, it is what it is. Uh, you get your hand slapped every now and then. So we'll move on from that. All right, Todd, hope you're doing okay. I haven't asked that question, but yeah, you sound, you sound like you're doing all right. We got a little voicemail here from Walter, so let's go ahead and play it and see what he's got to say. We've, I've not listened to any of this, so Walter could uh, break every rule in uh, the history of audio. We're going to find out live on the air here. So I'm going to play it now. Let's see what we got. This is Walter Kafka, gentlemen. I was looking for the pit, and I stumbled into the gate. Now, uh, allow me to fire a rocket into the belly of this Spielbergian <laughs> nostalgia overload, but uh, no one wants to see an unrobed Borgnine. Uh, just a <laughs> heads up, gentlemen, that uh, Grizzly 2 is now available. Um, the whole thing is covered with a digital filter, presumably to cover up anachronistic drone footage. Uh, instead of the concert footage of the original bootleg, there's uh, gratuitous this nature stock into the footage. Al Capone's vault Was this directed by Bruno Mattei? <laughs> I wish. As John Rhys-Davies would say, you got the devil bear. Adios. <laughs> the devil bear. I like that. I haven't seen the Grizzly 2 thing that they released. I don't uh, think I honestly want to, to be honest with you. Um it doesn't look like something that I'd be interested in. I guess I, I guess there's some curiosity peaks with the idea of it, but right. it was incomplete well, I, to begin I with. Say, I can say two things. Number one, I heard none of his voicemail. Okay, so there's that. Well, uh, you know, so what? I, I apologize, uh, <laughs> but I will say this: I did review what was available of Grizzly Two way back when uh, on the uh, the blog. Nice. Um, so this would have been uh, Christ. Uh, Back around like 2016, 17, somewhere around there. Yeah. So look, look at us, uh, 500 and something, 600 and something episodes, and I forgot to share the screen so you could hear the voicemail. So <laughs> I was wondering, I was thinking to myself, Todd, you're talking over the voicemail. Uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm like, I hear nothing. That's totally a faux pas. And then come to find out Todd's not doing anything wrong. It was me. So so, so I apologize to Walter for talking over your uh, your voicemail. No, the gist of it That's came bad. Yeah, the gist of it came through. Uh, he also... Said uh, something about nobody wanting to see a nude Borgnine. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That and a, and a Robert Prosky doing a little bit of docking would be uh, Ooh, yeah, certain yeah. people's dream. Uh, yes, this is true. Uh, but we do appreciate the voicemail. Especially with both of them spitting tobacco. Sorry, Todd didn't hear it. Uh, but the sentiment is there, and I'm not playing it again. So <laughs> Keep sending them in, <laughs> no, folks. No, but thank you, thank you for, for yeah. calling in. Yeah, keep call. sending the voicemails in, and I promise you, Todd, will get we'll to get hear We'll get it them. right next time. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Todd won't get to hear them. I'll only listen to them, and Todd yeah. will react blindly. <laughs> That's I'd be, like it better, actually. <laughs> That's going to be the way this show goes. It works. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, what a cluster. Anyway. Two zipper. I feel like two zits next to each other. I don't know which one to pop first. You know what I mean? <laughs> the one that's on the inside of the ass cheek. <laughs> yeah, this is that uh, that pain from the bulbous uh, double zit that you get. <laughs> like, I got to get some relief. Which one goes first? Uh. Anyway, um, let's watch. Let's do a bit of what you've been watching. I don't know how much you watched this past week. I'm assuming not much because you've still been busy. But yeah, uh, a couple things. Um, not really a lot though. But yeah, uh, another Crimey, The Black Abbott, 1963, directed by J.F. Gottlieb. Um, this one flips around some of the uh, the standard roles that we've seen up until this point, or that I've seen up until this point. Uh, Eddie Arendt now gets to get a little bit physical with doing some uh, some judoing. Uh, which he's actually, uh, funny enough, pretty capable at. And uh, Joachim Fuchsberger uh, is uh, is here again, but he doesn't play his standard uh, dashing inspector character. So that was a little bit a uh, little bit odd and a little bit out of uh, out of step with some of the other movies. Uh, of course, Klaus Kinski Klaus Kinski uh, is uh, is totally you know standard uh, Kinski. So. Um, this one has some uh, some decent uh, Euro Gothic aspects to it. Uh, the story is uh, basically all about this hunt for uh, like an old treasure uh, on the, uh, the the grounds of like a, a dilapidated abbey, hence Black Abbot. Um, so there's a lot of uh, of room for like dank, uh, musty goings on in, in crypts and all that sort of thing. Uh, the ending is is pretty good and pretty wild, uh, and as well, it is also pretty lengthy. Um, and that being said, this one really goes out of its way to be overly complicated uh, in terms of uh, in terms of plot, which isn't you know tremendously surprising. Uh, but this particular uh, uh, picture is uh, pretty egregious in this regard. Uh, so that takes away a little bit of the uh, the innate charm, but it's not bad. Uh, I liked it. So there was that. Uh, moved on from there to. Uh, the Enchantress uh, from uh, 1983, directed by Chu Yuan, not to be confused with Amara of uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby fame. Um, this is uh, late cycle Shaw Brothers. Uh, so this one is, you know, purely uh, fantasy land uh, in this one here. Uh, there are a lot of uh, animation effects, you know, like lasers shooting out of people's hands and shit like that. A whole lot of uh, colored gels that would make Bava uh, want to come in his pants. Um, there's a lot of wire work, uh, and there is so much fog in this movie that I think that uh, Lucio Fulci should have gotten a, a royalty. Mm. Um, as well, it has a uh, it has a pretty decent little synth score uh, that pops up every now and again. So that's nice. Uh, the story itself is uh, is simple and kind of bland. Um, but the, uh, the enthusiasm, uh, in this thing keeps it, uh, keeps it lively for the most part. Uh, it, 
It's also helped by the uh, the presence of the the late great uh, Philip Kwok and Lo Lee, uh, Lo Lee, who looks like he's uh, he's having more fun than usual, uh, kind of just absolutely hamming it up. Um, it's uh, it's pretty light stuff, uh, maybe just a little bit too light, uh, and I don't think that the martial arts choreography is all that great in my opinion. But uh, this thing is really kind of living off the uh, the good graces of just how well uh, how wild it's willing to get. Uh, so I think that it, you know, if nothing else, you could say that uh, it's certainly a um, uh, a singular uh, cinematic. It's just not a particularly great one. Uh, hold on a second, I gotta clear my nose here. Oh, oh, lordy, fucking sinuses. Uh, and then I did a watch of this movie called Shadow in the Cloud. Um, yeah, uh, this film really goes out of its way uh, to show almost all guys on this plane as being absolute chauvinist assholes, especially the uh, Scottish guy and the Southern guy. Uh, in fact, I think that it's such a focus for the first 25 minutes of this thing that it really became, for me, uh, a distraction and a detraction uh, from the rest of the picture, which is also a mildly enter- uh, mildly entertaining, mildly interesting mess. Um I think that it was it's pretty audacious to have so much of the movie take place in one extremely limited location and tell so much of the story uh, with the, with sound and with editing and all that. Um, but they actually pull that off. Uh, so, you know, credit where it's due on that. Um, and, you know, naturally, this uh, this owes a, a very, very, very large debt to the uh, the Twilight Zone. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz does a, a nice job, as usual, uh, though I think that the, uh, the, the screenplay very conveniently um pauses the uh, the external threats whenever it needs her to deliver an emotional beat um the design of the uh, the gremlin creature uh is nicely done i thought so that's a plus um the score is wildly incongruous and also distracting um it's you know very uh, very ravey very synthy uh so it's just is wildly out of place in a uh, movie set in 19 uh in 1940, whatever, during the World War II, uh, and then there's a there's a sequence that um, comes up in the movie that defies probability and all the laws of physics so completely uh, that I pretty much just checked out uh, because the movie essentially just became a cartoon uh, like the one at the, at this movie's opening uh, opening scene. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess if you can, you can let go enough to, uh, to be okay with that attitude, you can have an okay time with this. But, uh, for me, it's strictly one nightstand material. Um, and I, I, you know, I particularly had to, uh, to give a chuckle at just how ham fistedly, uh, feminist this thing tries to be, especially in its final moments. Like it's so just you know dangling it in your face and just kind of being like ah, I was just like come on man I already watched fucking Falcon and Winter Soldier I don't need another fucking I don't need another lecture but they gave it to us anyway uh, so I mean on the one hand I think it's some pretty good filmmaking on the other hand I think that it is um, it's uh, overshadowing uh, filmmaking with the with the message and I think that's always uh, bad. So there was that, uh, and that's pretty much it. That's all that I got. Nice, nice. Well, some, you know, something, right? Sure. Well, I know that I'm. I'm pretty sure you like. I guarantee you, you like this more than I did. But uh, which one again? The last one you just Shadow in the Cloud. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, 
I did because it was uh, such a weird and strange creation. Uh, not because of some of the other stuff, but because I just thought it was odd. It's got an odd tone to it. <laughs> and well, yeah, like, and, 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 and no, and I appreciate that too. But I mean, it's it's so everything about it is so incongruous that you're just like, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, I, I appreciate its oddity, but uh, yeah. by the same token, I can't say that. I yeah. can't say it's you know great or good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think that was one of the ones that I liked because of its oddity. Sure, I can uh, appreciate that. Um, all right, I watched a few things. Uh, Those who wish me dead. Sorry, I forgot what. Uh, I had a moment there where I forgot what you was talking about. I don't know what's wrong with my brain, <laughs> that's, but that's the way it is. That's all right. All right I, I knew what, what you're talking about. Half the yeah, time, I so. knew what you were talking about. I just forgot what to talk about. <laughs> This podcast is off to rip roaring start. We couldn't get the intro up. I couldn't play the voicemail for you. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm off the rails, okay? Completely off the rails. <laughs> Ugh, the cocaine is really working. Yeah, right. Uh, I watched Those Who Wish Me Dead, which is the uh, another one of these Warner Brothers uh, straight to vi- uh, well, straight to streaming plus theaters type things on HBO Max. It's uh, Taylor Sheridan's uh, newest film. Um, Angelina Jolie plays a... Uh, a fire jumper in this one, so it's definitely got that Hollywood element of believability. But uh, I've always been a fan of Angelina Jolie, to be honest with you. I think as an actress, she's really good. I just think that uh, you know a lot of other stuff gets in the way because she's Angelina Jolie. But she's got a certain charisma that uh, I was telling Jose, friend Jose of the show, that uh, she kind of oozes sexuality, and I don't know where that comes from. She either has it, you either have that, or you don't. Right. And to be honest like with me. you, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and to be honest with you, she's not even my type, but she's, uh, she kind of oozes it in some ways. And this, she's kind of ugling herself up and she's, uh, you know, a fire jumper kind of, uh, on the, on the ropes from some mistakes she's made and stuff like that. But the story's basic. It's a very basic, simple genre movie, uh, which I think Taylor Sheridan does really well. I hear movement upstairs, so I might get interrupted. Um, the uh, I like Taylor Sheridan stuff a lot. Uh, he does the Yellowstone TV show, which uh, is one of my favorite TV shows uh, probably ever made. I mean, it's it's a wonderful TV show, and uh, he knows genre very well. In other words, he doesn't waste any time trying to create something new. He just digs into what is already pr- tried and true, mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of goes for it. And I appreciate that because uh, there's not enough guys doing that nowadays. Nowadays, it seems like everybody, which I'll talk about here in a little while, has to mix genres. Yep. And there's a whole bunch of uh, inclusivity and all kinds of crap going on that doesn't even need to belong. It doesn't matter. The point is it's a genre movie. So I don't know. Um, It's kind of silly, some of the stuff you deal with in movies. But this isn't great. Don't get me wrong. It's just a good little genre romp. It's about an hour and a half long. But. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody unless they were interested in seeing a Taylor Sheridan Angelina Jolie movie. There you go. Uh, switched gears. I might get interrupted here, so I'm kind of hesitant to bring this one up, but I'm just trying to see if anybody <laughs> will come down here into the uh, podcast area to uh, interrupt me. Um, I watched Army of the Dead. This is Zack Snyder's movie. Now, oh, I heard about this. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you have. Now, uh, I am a Zack Snyder fan. Uh, some folks are I not. Am. Yeah, some folks are not, and I think that's totally cool. Um, some folks are Rob Zombie fans. Some folks are not. 
Some folks are Glenn Danzig fans. I don't know who those folks are, but yeah, who are you? Yeah, cinematically, I call should say. into the show. Yeah, cinematically, I should say. I'm not. Uh, I, I do enjoy some of Glenn's music. Anyway, some I said some. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Army of the Dead. Um, so this sounds good on paper. Uh, Zack Snyder uh, Army uh, zombie movie with um, a heist involved. Las Vegas, kind of a post-apocalyptic thing going on. On paper, I'm, you know, as a horror fan, I'm like, yeah, this sounds good. Sounds good. Um, and they, I, I like. Well, if nothing else, if nothing else, I think you have to admire the, um, the analogy there. Yeah. And I liked, um, I like most of Zack Snyder's stuff. I do. I don't like Sucker Punch, but I, oh, I like. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. So, so you might like this because Sucker Punch is the Zack Snyderness of Zack Snyderness. Yeah. This yeah. is the next level of that. Oh. This is the level of Zack Snyder that I don't care for, which is okay. Zack Snyder being Zack Snyder for Zack Snyder's sake. I like yeah. it better when he takes something and just throws his his Michael Bayness on top of it. His stank. Yeah, I like it better that way. As the kids say. Yeah, which, you know, his superhero films I enjoyed, and uh, I enjoyed uh, 300, even though I think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a turd. I do, I do enjoy it. Uh, and his Dawn of the Dead, which I quite enjoyed. Um, might honestly be the best film he made uh, in all this time, which is his first film. So there you go. Um, but this is just, you know, this is everything that's wrong with zombie movies uh, for me. Uh, I've seen every, I've seen some people say it's the zombie movie that ends all zombie movies. To me, it's more like uh, a movie that could end all movies in general. <laughs> <laughs> it's truly terrible. It's uh, truly one of the worst movies I've seen in the last five years. So, and I and I watch bad movies, folks. Uh, the movie's a bore, a complete bore, and a complete snore, uh, over and over and over again. And uh, I feel bad for the actors. It's uh, it's terrible. It's like a bunch of people got together and said, "Hey, I played Call of Duty Zombies once," and this is what they do in that. Okay, I got you. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's not a movie. That's a video game. There's yep. there's a difference. <laughs> That's interactive. This isn't interactive. This is passive, and I'm not liking the passivity you're giving me. You're making me sick. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't knock anybody who likes this because you know I know horror fans. I'm one myself. I know that we accept a lot, but uh, this movie's terrible. Yeah, zombie tigers, <laughs> a zombie horse. For some reason, um, I don't want to give away spoilers and everything, but these zombies have emotions. Okay. Uh, there's actually uh, this this there's actually a teardrop from a zombie in this. Uh, okay. I don't know what that statement is. Uh, I don't know if Snyder loves the zombies more than he loves the people. Maybe that's the statement. I highly doubt it. Um, it's yeah. Watch it at your own risk. I see some people like it. Uh, it's it's a poo farm. That's what I'll say. <laughs> 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 not not a fan i'll never i can say this with absolute honesty even if there's a special edition and i and i own movies i don't like folks i will never yeah, you do actually i will never own this i will never watch it again that's how bad it was never Oof. will i watch it again um but teach their own 
Uh, but then we switched gears. My son wanted to get into some uh, Hong Kong movies. So I was like, well, you know, how do we open him up to that? I don't know if the Shaw Brothers stuff, he's ready for that. That's a little much. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do some Americanized Hong Kong type stuff. Uh, so one of the best gateway drugs for any of that is Jackie Chan, right? Yep. So we threw in Rumble in the Bronx, uh, kicked it off. Um, this is my son's first rated R movie. Of course, it's rated R because it's in the States. Uh, I don't think that this movie has, other than the other than the fact that the F word's in it about three times compared to one, this movie's not even as close to violent as a Mission Impossible movie is. <laughs> but uh, it seems like everything that comes from overseas and comes here and has got a lot of fighting in it gets a rated R. So that's it's always been that way with Asian films for whatever reason. Um, so we watched it. Um, he quite enjoyed it. He quite enjoyed it. Uh, he was kind of baffled by the fact that uh, there was no CG, which was a kind of a fun, fun <laughs> conversation to have. Uh, and then I got to, you know, talk about Buster Keaton and how there's these showmen throughout history who have uh, put their life at risk to entertain, to bring something amazing to the screen. And that Jackie Chan really didn't have to do any of this. He decided to do this. This is a decision he makes. And that kind of, you know, you could see that kind of lit a fire behind his eyes a little bit. And he thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, he enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it on a rewatch. I mean, it's obviously it's not a masterpiece, uh, Rumble in the Bronx, but it's still an incredibly rewatchable movie. And uh, it's a very simple story. And it has one of the worst gangs uh, ever portrayed from an Asian angle in American history. It's up there. It is up there. <laughs> it manages to cover every... Uh, Every nationality in there. There's a uh, Mexican game member. There's a there's an Italian. There's a you know, and, and they managed to get all of it. And, and and in the process, they managed to offend everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty amazing. Um, it's a really bad gang, but it's kind of fun in how bad it is. Even my son was like, "This gang is terrible." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> they seem to have no no uh, real good game plan. And uh, no. Nah. Clearly, they don't have benefits, no dental or nothing else. Nope. Um, anyway, um, it was fun. It was fun to watch that and uh, break him in. I'm going to be traveling soon to uh, see Troy and Randy and some folks. So um, he uh, he reached out to me, my son did, and uh, said, look, Dad, I, I don't want to feel left out. I know you guys talk about Jackie Chan movies and Donnie Yen movies and stuff like that. And this mostly comes from the uh, Troy angle, Troy from over at Not A Bomb Podcast and because he's big into Asian cinema. And I said, look, you don't have to watch that stuff. You, if you never watch an Asian movie your whole life, that's your choice. You don't have to watch any of that stuff. Um, you watch what you want to watch. And he's like, well, I just want to be in on the conversation. I'm like, okay, cool. Then we'll we'll watch some Asian action movies. So I let him pick, and he picked Rumble in the Bronx. There's some other stuff on the slate to watch uh, for him to pick. Kung Fu Hustle was one. And nice. uh, Shaolin Soccer's on there, obviously. The Stephen Chow stuff, which I think is very accessible, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some Donnie Yen stuff on there. So he's uh, he's got some fun stuff coming his way if he latches on to the martial arts stuff. Uh, Jackie Chan, martial arts, uh, it's in there, obviously, but you know, Jackie Chan's also a genre all his own. All right. Well, I think that, yeah, you, gotta, you definitely have to get him uh, a little bit of Shaw Brothers in there. Oh, I'm definitely going to. I got some, you know, some great stuff there. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, anything with the, the Yun Wuping has directed could go yeah. come across his radar and get a little dreadnought going. Oh my god, that'll blow his mind. Oh yeah. And then uh, you know, some of that other stuff. But 
again, uh, I'm not the, you know, and again, I do not judge anybody. I hate when I say this out loud, but it's the truth. I don't push anything on my son. I let everything come to him naturally. Uh, it's just my choice as a parent. Um, he'll ask me something and I'll say, well, check this out. This is what I was into. But I had, I've never like sat down and said, we're going to watch this because I want you to know what this is. And I want you to know what that is. It's just not the way I do things. I'm, I'm totally passive when it comes to the way he discovers his passions. Um, some of the stuff he loves, I have no idea what it means. Uh, and that's great. He, he's his own person. So, um, again, that's fine. He doesn't have to share my passion. All he has to do is be my son. Um, and finally, last night I watched uh, the Melee Mystery. The Melee's Melee's Mystery. That's uh, Melee's. 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 Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is just a short one-hour documentary. Uh, just came out uh, this year, I think, about uh, Melee's. Right? Melee's? Melee's. 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 <laughs> yes, George Melee's. Melee's. Anyway. Indeed. Um it's easy for you to say. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but it's it's just kind of interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously he's one of the fathers of cinema. So um, I would recommend people check it out if they don't know anything about him. But if you do, you probably won't get a whole lot of new stuff here. Hmm. Um, but very cool. Very cool stuff. I, I, there is a nice little, the mystery part of it is that uh, for some reason they found like 200 of it, or not 200, but like 80 of his original films, original negatives in the Library of Congress they didn't even know they had. So that tells you that the Library of Congress has so much stuff that even they don't know what they have. Yeah. So that's uh, both really cool and really disturbing. Yeah, there's a bunch of jerks. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, what is this stuff? I don't know. It's just some of them silent pitches. Uh, so anyway, normally this is where I would say we're going to take a break, but we're not going to do that. Okay? Nope. We're going to keep on rolling. That's right. We're going to prove our point. The only way we know how. And We're going to cut our nose yeah. to spite our face. That's right. We're going to prove our point the only way we know how, which is to subject you to us constantly the entire show. The entire runtime is nothing but us talking and talking and talking and talking. And I know before people say anything that we said we were going to get rid of the what you've been watching, but not until the voicemail kicks up will I be getting rid of that. Um, still need some filler at the beginning and the, what you've been watching is a nice warm up for, uh, getting the vocal cords going and things like that, which I am a firm believer in. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I guess I could, uh, you know, start just springing my guitar out and playing the breaks. Do, do it. Yeah, I could do that. Maybe that's, do it. Maybe that's an option. Pick a little bluegrass, do a little thrash on acoustic, mm -hmm. which sounds like bluegrass. Um, yes, it does. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, uh, directed by one Toby Hooper, or some of the English folk that, uh, that I podcast listen to, they tend to call him Tobe. Yeah, well. It's, it's interesting. I don't, uh, I, I mean, I see how you get it from the name, but it seems like he's always been known as Toby. Uh, two siblings and three of their friends en route to visit their grandfather's grave in Texas fall victim to a family of cannibalistic psychopaths. You know, I think after all these years, I still always forget or even have hardly ever paid attention to the fact that they're on their way to visit a grandfather's grave. I seem to think that they're always going to a concert or something else. <laughs> you know, so it Yeah, just, no. It just they're, seems, they're actually it's pretty a pretty morbid little yeah. 
yeah. set up to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I picked this one. Uh, if you want to lead on it, you can. If you if you don't want to, I will. Um, this is a uh, what the uh, kids would call a seminal uh, little pitcher. Yes, there's a lot of semen. Uh, that uh, yeah, that has been around for uh, a long time and has influenced uh, so many people. But uh, like so much cinema, uh, it's it's been ripped off before. Um, I don't think it's ever been ripped off quite quite right. But even it, in some way, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is riffing a little bit on some of the setup of the innocence of uh, you know what Wes Craven and uh, Sean Cunningham did with Last House on the Left. This was an era of cinema where once the boundaries were dropped, people were going to push as much as they could. And what's interesting about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the title pushes a lot. The movie itself doesn't push nearly as much as you think. So, um, But, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Let's do that. Oh, me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this, so. is where, this is where I play the break. Hang on. No. Wait. <laughs> no. <laughs> this, is, wait a minute. this is where I play the voicemail. You can't hear. Hold on. <laughs> I'm ready for this. Um, so, okay. Uh, yeah, there was a, there was a time, uh, way back when, when, uh, movies had a certain reputation. Uh, and this is something that's, you know, it's been, I think, diminished, uh, in the, uh, the internet age, obviously. Um, and I think that this is because you couldn't just watch everything at any, any time you wanted to. I mean, sure. Uh, there's still stuff like, um, uh, like a Serbian film or martyrs or whatever that, you know, gets people kind of, uh, gobsmacked. Um, yeah, every, yeah, every now and then a culture will come across and it was France, what, a decade ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with that, stuff like that and inside and all yeah, that. Frontiers, things like that. They, yep, they get yep. these really aggressive, high tension was another one. These really yeah, aggressive, yeah. uh, violent horror films and there'll be another batch of them. There might be a batch I'm going on right now and I don't even know what it is, but it's entirely possible. Um, there'll be another batch of this because it comes and goes. These, uh, yeah. extreme horror films, they come and go, well, but yeah, but what I think is that you know, I mean, it's more in the in the same way that people want to stare at like a car accident. Sure. Um, sure. And you could do that with you know with the computer in the po- in in your pocket like whenever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but films like this, like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which you know for a long time you couldn't just watch uh, unless it was playing in a theater yeah. or censored on TV. Though I I cannot recall ever. Uh, this thing playing on local stations unless I missed it. Uh, I don't remember that either. I saw this at the drive-in. This, the first time I saw this as part of a double bill. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. the title scared me uh, more than the movie well, that's, did. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm getting there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, movies like this, they, they got a reputation for being extremely gory, which it isn't. Uh, and just, yeah. you know, extreme in general, which it also isn't, and at least, you know, by my reckoning. So, mm. you know, this sort of, this sort of plays up your fear, uh, by letting your, you know, your, uh, your individual imagination run wild. And this was certainly the case with me mm-hmm. by the time that this thing came out on video, uh, and I was able to rent it. I had no idea what to expect, right. uh, but I knew that it was going to be wild. Uh, in fact, it took me a while. Uh, to build up the guts to to press play uh, mm. on my VCR for this one, right? Um, but uh, you know, once I did, uh, it was really kind of like uh, turning on the lights, uh, just to discover that the, uh, the you know that that uh, that shadowy monster or whatever over in the corner of your room is just a pile of dirty clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
<laughs> and that being said, uh, my first watch, you know, also was like a slap in the face, uh, and it definitely had a prof- profound uh, effect on me. So its reputation, uh, with that in mind, I think is well deserved. I mean, you know, there are moments in this movie that really just stick to your ribs, yeah, um, in are. the best way possible. Yeah. There are. I got to say when uh, now. So when I saw this the first time, I was in a drive in and I was just becoming, you know, a, a big movie fan. I, so, again, VHS was not a thing yet. So but in the, you know, you know, I'm born in 73. I'm guessing I saw this at seven or eight years old. Uh, so that would have been 80 or 81. So VHS was not in our house yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, cable was starting to come around, but it wasn't on cable that I recall. Um, no, but it was part know. of a double bill. They would in the summertime. They would always play horror films. And my, we had a. I may have told the story before. I don't know, but uh, we. I my best friend had an older sister, and she would take us to everything, uh, even the stuff my mom and dad. My mom and dad were very liberal when it came to what I watched, but she would take us to these double bills, these horror and double and triple bills at the drive-in, uh, which was about twenty miles away from where I grew up, and. And uh, we, we of course, loved it because we were seeing things we weren't supposed to see. So I had none of that buildup. So, but I still had that kind of profound experience uh, because it was it was odd. It, and it still is an odd movie in a lot of ways um, because it's not so much. It is what the title says, but the title is such a visceral title. And I think it has to do a lot with the creation of the chainsaw itself and the word massacre. Yes. Yes. Um, that your mind plays games with you before you even see it. And that's yes. that's kind of a, it, it's kind of in a way like the most genius exploitive title of all time uh, in that way to me. Um, it's not nearly as, or it doesn't, and I know I know your thoughts on Last House on the Left and everything. Uh, it doesn't nearly go for what that film was going for, which is to offend you in every way possible in some mm-hmm. regard. And then uh, it's not like a Herschel Gordon Lewis film either, which was made just to shock you uh, and to get people in the drive-in seats either. Right. But it, it's somewhere it's somewhere after that. It's somewhere in some world. And it, it's really this kind of moment in time, this kind of spark of creativity between Kim Hinkle, uh, Toby Hooper, and Daniel Pearl, and these actors. It's really just kind of this unique moment in horror movie history that... Mm-hmm then these come along every now and then that everybody tried to repeat and nobody could ever really repeat it. It's just kind of, it, that, that's what I always think of when I take a think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's this very well, no, unique really moment. Storm in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it's, and because of that, it's not only become a horror classic, but it's become in a lot of ways, an American independent cinema staple. Like it's mm-hmm. one of the most important films I would argue ever made. Well, yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, uh, a large part of that as well is that it is about, it is a movie that is, you know, couldn't be made in a, a different country. It is, it is extraordinarily yeah. uh, American. Yes. Uh, in just about every way, shape, and form. And you could even argue extraordinarily Texan. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but the, the movie for me, uh, it plays very much like a fairy tale. Yeah, uh, and it there, really there does. Two, as time goes well, on. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but as time goes no, no, on, no, go I mean, this is probably what, I mean, who knows how many times I've seen this thing at this point, uh, yeah. 50, maybe. I mean, that's being, that's, that's a good guess, but I mean, I've seen it a lot. Um, it really does feel like a fairy tale now. It feels almost yeah. like a, 
a cautionary tale, which are what fairy tales were, right? Yep. A, yep. Gr- a Grimm's fairy tale is what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's two specific moments in the movie that inform uh, that for me. Uh, the first one is in the opening. Uh, with the uh, the light bulb flashes and the metal grating noise and the the decomposed uh, body parts, and for me, um, they're they're uh, these things are, are fetishized and they're made into effigies. Like mm-hmm. uh, when guys like uh, Vlad Tepish uh, used to impale his enemies and eat while yeah. he's he, you know sat there looking at them. Would you say uh, this a, is one of the most memorable openings? Um, I you? would say it is absolutely one of the most memorable openings uh, <laughs> ever in the the history of uh, cinema. Certainly in the history of American cinema. Again, yes. it's just it's a very old worldy kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is also something that I think the film is about, uh, with the family that, you know, had to adapt to survive in a modern mechanized society and so on, kind of like a Sonny Bean sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a statement too. It's a statement. Sure. It's, it's a moment where you're like, you sit down, you hear the flash, you see a little something, yep. you don't know exactly what it is, but it's Hooper telling you, I'm going to blow your mind. It, uh-huh. It's, it's, it's like a statement. It's like, boom. Well, and then he proceeds to, yes. Um, and then the second moment is uh, there's this there's this really great tracking shot from behind Terry McMinn, who, uh, mm. as I understand it, does not really particularly care to talk about um, the movie due to her experiences on set. Although she has kind of opened up a little bit in re- more recent times. Yeah. Um, this is uh, the, uh, you know, as the she's, girl as on she's the approaching hook. the house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One um, of the, one of the most memorable shots in cinema history, you could argue. Yeah, right. Uh, not only is it a fantastic shot visually and technically, but for me, uh, it, this thing evokes the sort of uh, twisted American uh, slash Southern Gothic qualities of the old folk tales that used to uh, pass around this country. Right. Um, and but you know, so much of the movie's visuals uh, are about like uh, they're all about overgrowth or the sun or heat, uh, and this all leads to the uh, the the um, the burial, uh, in a way of the old, uh, American society and its replacement, uh, then is not all that enticing and particularly at this moment in American history. Yeah. Um, 1974, not currently. And you, uh, could, and you could go one step further with that if you really wanted to and say, it's mm-hmm. also a statement on poverty and, uh, I think neg- you could, uh, yeah, neglect. absolutely you could. And neglect. I mean, it's, it's all there. I mean, it's, uh, he might not have intended it to be that way, but it's all there. And of course, then you get a whole generation of filmmakers similar to our age or a little bit older who are so inspired by this, like the Rob Zombies, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Although who, I would I would also argue that he was probably more influenced by part two than he was by part one. I would argue that as well because of the absurdity of the redneckness of everything. Yes. I mean, if you if you ever thought Rob Zombie had a Holy Grail movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two is it. <laughs> Oh my yes! <laughs> uh, I would dare him to say to me if I was having a conversation with him that he'd be like, "No, nah, I'm not really into that one." I'd be like, "Dude, <laughs> <laughs> who, who the fuck are you kidding, man? <laughs> yeah. Don't lie to me, dude." <laughs> but no, yeah, I, but, yeah. yeah. But all these things we we're talking about are again, you know, this is an, an independent movie made by a bunch of young folks in Texas who just had a hankering to make a movie and they made this. And I think that's the really great, the story behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre is they made this American classic mm-hmm. without realizing all those things that they had absorbed over the years kind of came through and it never hits you over the head. No pun intended because there is a hammer to the head in this movie. 
Um, but it never hits you over the head with his commentary. I mean, it, it, it's one of the more it's 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 what really good horror films or genre cinema can do. It can inform you of situations, while at the same time you you think you're being blindsided with just entertainment or just a good old fashioned gore film. But in a weird way, and it's not overly political, but it's making a statement. It's also telling you a lot about the America, the post-Vietnam America. So It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, and part of the magic of this film, I think, is that you know it, it also has a very um, earthy, very gritty atmosphere to it. It's really impressive uh, how Hooper and company managed to, uh, to capture so much like surreality and realism in the same frame. Yeah. Uh, and for me, this, this sort of, um, duality, uh, really helps sell the, uh, the insanity that, uh, that the main characters are, are thrown into. Um, the, uh, the characters or the, the protagonists anyway, uh, are not all that important. I think they're not all that well fleshed out. Uh, in the same way as the um, the the news report monotone uh, of the uh, the John Larroquette uh, opening narration, um, you know these the characters in this movie are pretty much ciphers. I mean, they could be anybody, uh, except of course for the uh, the ultra irritating uh, Franklin, who manages to uh, to make a, a, a paraplegic character uh, unsympathetic, uh, kind of like um, Lionel Barrymore in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, we're meant to identify with these folks only insofar as we can imagine um, what's happening to them as happening to us with the state of the world and the state of the country at that time. Uh, and that's why, uh, by the end, they're all either dead or insane. Uh, I think that uh, what what the movie ultimately is getting at is that, you know, the Sawyers, as they would later be called uh, in part two, are the uh, the, the symptoms of a virus that's spreading uh, throughout America, uh, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the uh, that point in time, uh, we were in a pretty bad recession. There was, I believe, by then we were, we had we were starting to have uh, a lot of uh, stagflation uh, in the economy. Uh, obviously, Vietnam, uh, which was easily one of the most uh, unpopular uh conflicts that uh, that america ever got involved with yeah uh we were also in the wake of three um three assassinations yeah. uh from the uh, the 60s i don't think the uh, the ramifications of vietnam can't be spoke of enough i know it's not something we really talk about as much anymore but well no and, and this also get played up a lot more in the second one yeah because i mean uh, vietnam was one of the first times people realized that you know what is this all for Right. Um, what are we doing? Well, I, I, yeah, no. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, we have, America has not uh, has not had uh, has not had a popular, and I, I'm using that term very very loosely, uh, war uh, since World War II, and that was when the entire obviously world uh, got behind a uh, got behind a point of view. Um, you know, they had a purpose uh, to uh, to doing what they were doing. Um, you know, but after that, and, and certainly when we got to Vietnam, it, it was just you know the 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 country was uh, was falling apart. And you also have to look at there was uh, the extra angle of the you know the whole death of the uh, the hippie generation, which these characters are hippies, um, you know, for the most part, uh, even though this is 1974. 
they're kind of like outliers in that uh, in that sort of regard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're you know very freewheeling, very you know kind of just like hey man, let's pick up a hitchhiker man, that kind of shit. Which I, I mean. <laughs> Today, if if uh, you want to pick up a hitchhiker, then I think you got some uh, a couple of rocks you want to fucking knock out of your head. But yeah, uh, that's on you. Um, that was always there, but you know, they, again, it was just different, a different time, right? It was, uh, it was. Uh, but I mean, but my my point is that this is when it was turning, and that's why when they pick up the hitchhiker, the Edwin uh, Neal character, um, you know, it it becomes not uh, not what they are used to. It becomes, you know, they, these these characters are clearly out of their comfort zone uh they're clearly have entered another world they clearly have been uh confronted with the reality that they have been avoiding their entire lives and it costs them uh and i think that's you know part of what uh, another part of what uh toby hooper is uh, is saying with the with the movie uh because you know he shows up and he's he's, he's clearly a crazy guy uh and you know has uh has definite uh issues then you know this is america uh, the America that you pass by, you know, the shitty little gas stations and uh, and all this stuff. And by the way, I love the uh, I love the little kind of joke of the uh, the guy who's washing the the van uh, when they pull into the gas station there with Jim Cedow. Uh And every time that he walks away from the uh, the van because he's kind of like blowing them off, then the guy with the uh, the bucket of water will kind of move back to his little stool. But then every time that Jim Cedow walks back, then he walks back and starts washing the van again. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> like that. That was funny. Um, so yeah. Um, and uh, so another part of the movie then is uh, is this angle of um, mysticism, uh, because the movie you know it talks a lot about uh, astrology and signs. Um, you know, a, a lot of things are ritualized, especially for the uh, the Sawyer family, um, like the hitchhiker. Again, uh, he he paints some some sort of uh, zodiacal sign on the uh, the side of the van. Uh, you know, he burns uh, Franklin's photo, kind of like an offering. Um, there are, uh, the, you know, the corpses all over the place that are kind of like bone art installations everywhere. Um, you know, the opening credits uh, of the movie itself, you know, inex- inexplicably take place over footage of solar flares. Um, and I think that, you know, part of that, you know, is trying to say that the universe is uh, against these characters, and by extension, us. Uh, and I, I find that really interesting because... The movie seems really steeped in this sort of fatalism uh, and, and you know, just this sort of mysticism. Like, you know, these people's signs didn't line up this day uh, and now they're dead. Um, and I think that, you know, we're meant to take that as, you know, but this is the way that it is because look at these solar flares. It's almost like whenever I see that, I always think of Day of the Animals, the ah, uh, yes. Girdler film. Uh, because, I mean, that whole movie uh, is premised on, you know, there's a hole in the ozone uh, that's making the uh, that's making all the animals go nuts uh, for like 24 hours, but then it repairs itself. Uh, but the thing here is that you know, well, there's all these solar flares and all this weird shit is going on, uh, and it's so hot and everything else that everybody's just insane, crazy from the heat to uh, to uh, paraphrase uh, or quote uh, David Lee Roth. Um, but you know, I, I think that that's kind of what they're kind of like hinting at. Uh, is that you know all this shit is just is weird and it's happening and you know there's no getting away from it because you know the earth is just doomed and yeah. this is the way that it is now. Yeah, and in that uh, way, in that way too, it's uh, you know, these like you said, these are like the last bastions of the hippie culture, and in that way too, it's a statement on that, right? The sure the end of the hippie culture. Well, it absolutely is. I mean, and, and coming you know after Altamont, after you know Manson, after all of this stuff. 
Um, you know, I mean, it was a very, it was a very bleak, very cynical uh, time in America, and you you have these four people who are are going on this morbid little quest, and you know, Franklin, out of all of them, <laughs> even though he's the most uh, annoying, is also probably the most uh, rooted in uh, in reality. Everybody else just kind of wants to be, you know, real freewheeling and still, you know, all free love and everything else, and do what I want and blah 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 blah. And Franklin's just kind of. You know, he's kind of like a little more skeptical about uh, about things, even though he's he spends most of his time going, "Hey, Franklin, what do you do, Franklin? You <laughs> yeah. can have a great time, Franklin." And he also he's, has, oh my God, he his annoying Zerberts are. Uh... Oh my God, <laughs> raspberries. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what? You know what I found? You know what I, I I noticed here, and I don't know if this is if this is intentional, but the way that his hair looks, uh, I kept thinking of. Uh, Samuel L. L. Jackson in uh, Unbreakable. <laughs> glass, the uh, yeah. Glass character in Unbreakable. Yeah, yeah. Mr. I, glass. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but yes, that's when he's in the wheelchair with the the hair that's really, <laughs> you know it's it's off to one side kind of, and you know Franklin has that same sort of look to his hair. Um, so yeah, uh, I just I I, just, I kept thinking of that uh, every time, and I was just like, wow, that's a really odd sort of sort of thing. It really um, is. It really is. I, but, I, I didn't put that together, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, my mind goes to strange places sometimes. Um, and this movie is also, uh, it's a proto-slasher uh, movie. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of and this is, you know, you got to think, I mean, yeah, it's after Gialli, uh, you know, that had come in, uh, and, and sort of waned. Uh, but it's also before Halloween and Black Christmas, and it never, you never hear people talk, like every time they say, well, the first slasher movies are like Halloween and Black Christmas. And I'm just like, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, Texas Chainsaw was like, you know, four years before both of those. So, you know, you never, you never, ever, ever hear people talk about this in terms of, uh, in terms of being a slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it certainly, you know, Leatherface has become, uh, a, uh, you know, a slasher icon, yes. uh, in that regard. Uh, but I always just, I, I find that really odd. It's just like an odd sort of, uh, dismissal of this movie in that in that way and maybe that's because it is it feels it feels less uh deliberate uh or less um formulaic in its uh, in its layout um maybe maybe that's it maybe it's because it's so visceral in a way that uh, slasher movies tend not to be because uh, slasher movies tend to be a little bit more uh surface level in uh, in some ways um, and maybe that's why it is, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it occurred to me while I was watching it that, uh, that, that is certainly the case. Uh, and speaking of, uh, Leatherface as an icon, um, I would, uh, I would suggest that he may very well be, uh, one of the, uh, the great, uh, queer icons, uh, of horror cinema. Oh, He's yeah. certainly one of the, uh, the earliest crossdressers, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yep. him and, uh, Norman Bates. Yeah. Um, and he, he certainly, uh, you know, he certainly displays, uh, Certain traits that uh, do not, uh, uh, let's say, line him up with uh, straight white male uh, characteristics, uh, but at the same time, he's also, you know, this brute, uh, brutish uh, animal uh, killer. So mm-hmm. I found that interesting as well. Uh, and they they play that up a little bit more um, in uh, consequent movies, not in the second one, uh, funny enough, but in uh, other movies in the in the series or the ones that I've seen anyway. Um, and then uh, you know you get uh, I think one of the uh, the best assaults uh, with a broom uh, this side of a Tom and Jerry cartoon uh, from uh, <laughs> yes. from Jim Seidow <laughs> when he meets up with uh, Marilyn Burns. 
It's it's Where funny. Jim Seedow has become the actor I remember the most when I think of these movies. How about it? Right? Yeah. He is uh, you know, and talk about an actor that would fit in in the Rob Zombie troupe. I mean, mm-hmm. he, if there's a if there is a prototype Rob Zombie character, it's Jim Seedow <laughs> and Chop Top. Those two characters. Yes. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, more chopped off, but yes. Yeah, yeah. well, definitely a mix of the two, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because he, he really, you know, he's made a career now, Rob Zombie has, out of these kind of glorified rednecks with a dark yep. sense of humor. And, of course, you know, it doesn't help that Bill Mosley works very tightly with Rob Zombie as well. So yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes that even more prevalent, but. Yeah, I, I, well, I when I watch these two movies back to back, it made me really realize, even though I don't think he's doing the greatest acting on the face of the earth because he's hamming it up big time. See how is? He's hilarious in part two though. You two oh, yeah. numbskulls! You. Sir. I just saw some booger run across here. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the uh, one of the greatest moments in the movie is that moment when they're just quiet. They see somebody run across and they just look at you. Do you see it? Do you see it? <laughs> <laughs> And they're all kind of looking at each other, like, huh? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but I think that, I think that uh, you know, getting to the, the the Rob Zombie sort of angle uh, is that you know he he's a bit more. I think that he looks at these things obviously a bit more like in a Harmony Corinne sort of uh, way. Uh, and I mean that, like, you know, my opinion of Harmony Corinne is that you know, yeah, he made Gummo. Uh, look at all these these interesting people. He's like, I'm, I'm watching Gummo. I'm like, he's not saying that they're interesting people. He's saying that they're fucking freaks of nature, and he's like, you know, he's leering at them and you know, looking at them like zoo animals. I don't know who the fuck else is is not seeing that, but mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the way that Harmony Corinne looks at things, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, he has a certain level of sympathy, surely, uh, and he certainly tries to do interesting things. But uh, and I think that that's the same sort of way that uh, that Rob Zombie looks at. Uh, at uh, uh, rednecks uh, and these sort of like really out there, really loud, abrasive, grating uh, redneck characters mm-hmm. uh, in that same sort of way. He's, you know, they're cartoons. Yes. Uh, and so he treats them like cartoons because they're not real people to him because, you know, these things don't exist except in movies like this uh, or, you know, the like. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not an invalid uh, way of looking at things or way of depicting things. Certainly it is. Um, but I'm just saying that that's also, I think, a very limited uh, sort of outlook. But uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, it, uh, it Rob, is, Zom- it, Rob Zombie has uh, Rob Zombie has uh, uh, issues of his own. To, yeah. To well, think. I mean, it is limited because he goes back to it over and over and over again. If he, if he, well, it's limited. It's limited because he does nothing with it. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. if all you do is scream in my face, get guess what? Eventually, I'm gonna fucking slap you. Yeah. I mean, it's the same same yeah. thing. Same thing. It's the dinner scene of this movie. Rob Zombie's filmography could be described as the dinner scene from Texas Chainsaw Massacre over and over and over again. Well, what I think it is, is it's the dinner scene from uh, the Texas Chainsaw of the Next Generation over and over and over again. Because where people are just sitting there screaming for like minutes on end. And you're like, why the fuck am I bothering to watch this? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, Yeah, that's more like it. I mean, it it just extrapolates it because a little bit of screaming is, is, you know, is kind of freaky. Let's do a lot of screaming. So then you wind up with a Rob Zombie movie. Yes. Um, so yeah, uh, but and that's the, all the all the notes they have. I mean, it's it's difficult to talk about a movie like this because I mean, it is it is something which is formative. It is something which has been impactful, uh, genre, not only genre wide but you know industry wide uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, the movie was made by uh, let's say um, less than honest people. It was financed by less than honest people. Yeah. Um, 
who wound up, uh, you know, screwing uh, Hooper and uh, and his cohorts. Yeah. Um, Which I think kept, and, kept Hooper away from it for a long time, right? I mean, the sequel doesn't come out until almost, 86. what, 12 uh, years later? 12 years later, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, of course, the people he ends up hooking up with to make the sequel, they give him more money, but they they weren't exactly the cleanliest of businessmen either. So we'll talk about those guys here in a little bit. Yeah, I think a lot yeah, yeah. of a lot of people forget who made the second one. So, canon. Yes, we'll talk about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, that's that's pretty much all I have to say about the about the movie off the top of my head. I mean, yeah, the movie is it's got a lot going on, uh, and it, it it looks better than you would expect it to. Certainly better than an exploitation movie uh, that you would expect uh, of this budget and of this time. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know slick technical moves there's uh, some really great compositions uh the production design is uh, is really out of this world mm-hmm. uh and certainly i mean i i don't think that you can dismiss um the impact that this would have had for for anybody to see it and then to you know have so much uh you know have that kind of like mandala uh effect um of people, you know, remembering that this thing was, you know, the goriest thing ever. And it's like, there's really not a lot of blood in this thing. And you certainly don't see any chainsaws actually entering any people except for a brief shot, uh, at the very end. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, well, I think uh, Franklin does get this thing is a legend in and of itself. What's that? Frank Franklin does get, doesn't Franklin get the chainsaw right up the right up from behind and stuff. No, he gets it in the front, oh, uh, but you really don't see it. No, you don't. Uh, yeah, you don't see anything. It's just no. You see some blood. You see some blood squirting. You see the. Uh, you see from behind, uh, from behind the wheelchair uh, as uh, you know Leatherface is going at him. But you don't. Uh, you don't see the the chainsaw actually. You know hitting him. You don't see. You know, there's no gore. There's no you know stuff being torn up with a chainsaw. Anything like that. No, you see. You see a little bit of a spray. You see the 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 smoke from the chainsaw. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Funny enough. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the, one of the goriest scenes is, uh, is, um, in the, uh, in the kitchen, uh, when he's, uh, when he's kind of, uh, dissembling, uh, that one guy, uh, who's on the, uh, the block there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. While Terry McMinn's on the meat hook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to me, the most graphic scene in the movie is really the scene where Leatherface is introduced, right? I mean, it's the oh yeah, the yeah. hammer scene, it's easily, yeah, with the sound effect, and of course, well, because the... because because yeah, I mean, it's such a brilliant, it's a brilliant little uh, piece of editing, and it's, I mean, man, if if to see that for the first time out of the fucking blue, mm-hmm. uh, the impact of that scene, no pun intended, is just it's yeah. it's unreal, yeah, uh, and it really can't be underestimated. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the great. Uh, great cinematic moments. I mean, it's up there with uh, the opening shot of uh, Touch of Evil. I know that sounds like hyperbole and craziness, but I mean, I think that the scene of that gentleman walking in there and looking down that hallway is yeah. one of the most influential. You tie that to the, the the short dolly shot, which is arguably one of the other. I mean, that whole moment is it goes down in the animals, the an, the animals, the annals of cinema history. <laughs> It really does. I mean, it, it's 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 one of the most unforgettable moments ever filmed, in my opinion. And then, of course, you know, it pays off really well. That whole scene, that whole scene, pays off really well, without being too overly graphic. And it's pretty, it's pretty. Well, you impressive. almost you almost find you almost kind of feel like it diminishes itself once we go into the kitchen with him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's like I was so much I was so much happier just seeing you know 
this quick moment and then you know because that's the that's the beauty of the movie is you know it, it there's so much of it you know plays on your mind uh like i said i mean like look at the, the trepidation that, that its reputation alone had on me uh, as a kid right um and and you know certainly that that once once you actually bring it into once you actually then show start showing things um then it it, it it takes away just a little bit because you're now you're 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 uh you're showing the monster, right? You're showing the shark, right? Uh, so to speak, right? Well, it's almost like a uh, it's it's like this almost brilliant build to a crescendo, and then of course, now you show how the sausage. Yeah, what is do made. you do after? No, yeah, no pun intended. Now you show how the sausage is made, and that exactly that can throw people for a loop or whatever. But it, it's just a moment of brilliance in cinema history, and you know Toby Hooper, who I've always had a a difficult relationship with film was yeah, uh, because yeah. I've never really loved. Well, I don't love the majority of the stuff he's done. Uh, most of it's problematic for me, uh, not in a controversial yeah. way or anything, but just in that I don't think it's very good. Yeah, um, I would agree. And you know, obviously, there's the argument: did he really direct Poltergeist? If he did direct most of Poltergeist, he did a pretty good job. It, it's a it's a solid movie. I'm not a per- big huge fan of it, but. Uh, I do admit that it's a solid movie, but even the the stuff that I do kind of enjoy, stuff like Life Force and things like that, there was always a lot of promise, it seemed like, with Hooper. That never really was much payoff uh, for what the promise uh, held. And right. uh, obviously, I think in a lot of ways, he went to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, I know for a fact, we'll talk about it when we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. that he did it because he couldn't get anybody else to direct it. He was actually a producer on it and was going to get it out there and stuff, but nobody would direct it. Nobody would touch it. So he just said, screw it. I'll do it. Now I've, I've, I've come to just like with Lucio Fulci and stuff, I've come to enjoy his movies more in the history of doing the show eating alive. I like more than I did originally when I saw it when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, this film though has always been that, that golden moment. Talk about a, talk about a filmmaker. Now this isn't his first film. A lot of folks get that mixed up. He actually, has another film before this called Eggshells. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that which, was uh, that was a, a drama, yeah, straight drama. Yeah, and and a small independent movie didn't get much of a release and stuff. And uh, this one came out and just was a is a landscape builder and changer. So, you know, not every filmmaker gets to do that. They're, that that's that just doesn't happen a lot. So, in cinema history, he is what he is and will always be known as this this father of uh, the macabre in some way, at least of the 70s, uh, even more so than Wes Craven. Like I said, Wes Craven made a more, in my opinion, and, and, and this sounds like I'm, I'm giving it praise, but I do think this film's better than Last House on the Left, and I know you do, but the, 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 quest, the Last House on the Left is, is more about I am going to punch you in the face as hard as I can over and over and over again, and it's more impactful that way then but it didn't really kind of hold water over time until later on with the italian cannibal for movies to me like there's a whole time after last house on the left where yeah there's some american films made in there that are trying to push boundaries but it's like that left such a bad taste in people's mouths and then and then hooper came along and made this movie which had all the promise of last house on the left's vulgarity and profanity but really was done in a classy way and yeah, I mean this thing. This thing is way slicker. Yeah. Uh, than you uh, than you might think. Yes. Yeah. And and so the, they kind of it kind of heeds off that potential 
uh, almost pornographic nature of what Last House on the Left was trying to do. Right. And and kind of heeds it off, and it just becomes these these movies. But it also, if you think about it, it kind of opens up the cannibal genre in some ways, too, which was already out there. I think Italy had already made some cannibal movies um, by 74. I want to, I want to believe they do. I might be showing my lack of knowledge here, but I, I want to believe that uh, Man from Deep River. Uh, was a, was a, I want to believe that was before seventy four, but I might. I think be wrong. that was yeah. That would have been that would have been around yeah. That would have been around seventy three ish. Yeah, but seventy two, seventy three. Some it's somewhere yeah, in there. I yeah, think yeah. it might be seventy one even, but it's somewhere in there. And uh, you know, you have to wonder, like with Brian De Palma films and everything else, you know, did did Hooper see? You know, a cannibal movie before he made this movie, or is he just going off the, the was it Sonny Bean? Is that what we talked about? Is, Sonny Bean, yeah. Yeah, is he just going off that age-old uh, tale of the Sonny Bean family? Well, which is the same thing that uh, Craven did with the, uh, you know, the Hills Have Eyes. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, the Hills Have Eyes is basically Craven's Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Exactly, it's exactly that, as a matter of fact, because that's what I'm saying. There's these this weird moment in cinema history where. Craven makes an impact. Craven and Sean Cunningham. We can we can't leave Sean Cunningham out of it because he's no, a pivotal part of American horror films. Yes. Um, they make this impact with Last House on the Left, and then Hooper comes along and he makes a bigger impact in some ways. And now Craven has to come back around and make himself almost relevant again. So there's this really nice what seventies horror had going for it. I think is there's this really nice kind of competitive streak going on amongst these guys. Uh, you know, I think John Carpenter's coming in there at some point, and he's making a statement. Now, his films are totally different, but these are trained filmmakers that are taking, you know, the film uh, narrative and all the lessons they've learned from film school or lack thereof or just watching movies and, and applying these to horrific situations and making these glorious horror movies of the 70s. And, uh, you know, all of them have one. I mean, I, I personally think... You know, I know. Again, I, I keep bringing this up, but I'm, I'm not I'm meaning to. But I know your thoughts on Last House on the Left because of the back end of the film. But obviously, Last House on the Left is an impact on Toby Hooper in some way because there's a chainsaw in Last House on the Left as well. Yeah, I'd have to believe that he saw that and was like, "Huh." And, and the chainsaw again is such a visceral piece of equipment. It's like a wood chipper. Yeah, you see yeah, these. Except things. you could hold it in your hands. Yeah, you see these things, and you think to your. I mean. Almost anybody would immediately think, Jesus Christ, that could do some serious damage to me if I don't, if I don't, if I'm not careful. And, and I have actually used chainsaw before. I don't know if you have, but I have actually used one and they are a scary piece of equipment. They are not, it's not as simple as it looks on screen. Even, uh, we'll talk about it with the second film with Hopper doing dueling, uh, with the dueling, uh, chainsaws and the, and the double fisted chainsaws things you know, obviously they took the teeth off of those because if you don't and somebody makes a mistake, I mean, a chainsaw will go through human flesh quicker than, you know, a hot knife through butter. A hot I mean, knife through butter. Yeah. It doesn't take much. And they are a scary piece of equipment. Uh, if you've never done it, uh, you know, it's pretty crazy. Just like a wood chipper. A wood chipper is a horrendously scary piece of equipment. Um, uh, if, if you don't believe me, go around one sometime. Don't do it. Let somebody at the train do it. And then let them show you how to do it, and then do it, and you will be. Well, do, you, do, you, do you start to get that uh, that looking into the abyss sort of thing, where you're just kind of like, like almost like you're uh, standing on a uh, yes, standing on a rooftop. You're looking over. You're like, I could just jump right now. You could jump in there and be completely crushed and eliminated in in mere seconds. And yeah, 
it's the power of something like that that's intimidating. And to me, that's that's almost what the whole movie's about. It's about that piece of machinery, and it's almost an industrial revolution commentary <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, um, well, I think that's that's part of what this movie is, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And certainly. And then that's and I agree with that. It's almost like, you know, we're moving so far ahead as a culture. We're moving into the next stage where maybe the things we make will destroy us. Mm-hmm. And uh, some folks can say, yeah, you know, Sammy, Todd, you guys are full of shit. You guys are looking into this way too much. It's just a movie about a bunch of hillbillies and, and a chainsaw. And, I and, would argue no. Yeah. But all that stuff's there. All that it's, it's just like George Romero's stuff. All that stuff is oh, yeah. there. And uh, it is a commentary on the next stage of culture and how these hippies and everything else are now they're running into the, the, the big machine, which is industry and going to college and getting a job and buying a car and owning a house. All that stuff is there. I mean, that's also the the certain sort of, the certain sort of uh, cynicalness uh, Mm -hmm. to the, uh, the movie in that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of looking at, well, you know, while all of these, all these hippie kids are just kind of running around doing whatever the fuck they want, and bear in mind, you know, Toby Hooper was pretty much a hippie. Uh, yes. You know, while while they're kind of tooling around and doing whatever the fuck they want, and you know, having a care in the world. Meanwhile, there's this family, uh, i.e., the rest of the country, uh, that they don't look at that they're driving past, um, who has been put out of work to the point that they're starving, and guess what? They have to turn to in order to do that. Well, they have to turn to cannibalism. Uh, and guess what? Then that that affects you because eventually you're going to run across them, uh, and eventually the real world will you know uh, cross your path, and you may not like it because you've been blinded or blindered uh, to it up until uh, up until this point in time. Uh, and I think that that's in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, you know, it's all there. It's all there. And of course, you know, this comes from you know, you like you said, Hooper was. Uh, you know, kind of a hippie guy himself. And, sure, sure he was. And, you know, he's seeing the transition. And, of course, you know, he ends up being a businessman in his life. And a lot of us are not what we, this ideal version of ourselves we were when we were in our 20s, right? right. Uh, I, di- I didn't think I'd end up what I'm doing now for a living. I mean, I'm still a sex symbol, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, that that's always been there. But right. uh, <laughs> a lot of us aren't. Uh, to me, there's like two forms of growing up. There's those first 18 years or 21 years before you can have an alcoholic beverage in public and everything else uh, legally. And then there's the next 20 years where you're trying to figure out what you're doing. And I guarantee you, your first 20 years and your and your second 20 years are two totally different, <laughs> oh, yeah. two yeah. totally different experiences. And you would argue, you could argue the second one, at least in my experience, and maybe in yours as well, because we're the same age. The second twenty years is a hell of a wake up call. <laughs> oh, yeah. The first twenty, eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the second twenty, hallelujah or holy shit, this is insane. I really got to get my shit in order, <laughs> or else I'm going to get walked on big time, uh, and my whole life is going to be ruined. I mean, life is it, it is the proverbial wood chipper. You know, you either get in, you either you're either the person putting that lumber in, or you're the lumber. It's really, it's really yeah, all it well, comes yeah, down to. Sometimes you're the, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Yeah, that's right. And then, then, and again, I think that's what this movie, a lot of this movie is about. It's about either you're, you're either on board or you're, you're chilly. It's as simple yeah. as that. Because yeah. the world will chew you up and spit you out. 
and all your yeah. ideals of the perfect despite all world. your little protestations yeah. and all your you little... know, all your all your bitching and moaning about how things should be. Guess what? You yep. can bitch and moan as much as you want about how things should be. It ain't it, gonna be that way. It will never ever change. It will always be the same way. And there's one reason for that is because human beings are involved. Sure. And and once human beings get involved, it always there's a reason why ideals stain. are called ideals. Yeah. It leaves a stain. We leave a stain everywhere we go. I we are right now. Yeah, we are the skid mark on the planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> we are definitely the skid mark. That's a cheery thought. <laughs> well, sometimes a skid mark can be a solid uh, endeavor. Maybe uh, sometimes they are solid. I will grant you that. <laughs> yeah. Better they're when solid you, more often than not. When Ooh. you could fold your underwear like a piece of cardboard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to, uh, to get back to the movie, there is there are some seminal moments in the movie. I totally agree. Uh, you know, another shot that I don't think gets enough credit is the shot where they pick up the hitchhiker. How far back sure. he is and how yeah, low yeah. the van it's one of those is. Those wonderful long distance. Uh, oh man, it's a beautiful shot. Long shots. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful shot. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it really kind of captures Texas to me. Mm-hmm. And you know the kind of big, just you know, the, I know there's the well, joke. I, Everything's I that, bigger speaking, in Texas. Speaking of speaking of capturing Texas, I think that that's kind of uh, Toby Hooper's pretty much doing that in his very first shot. Well, one of his very first shots yeah. with the armadillo. Yeah, I think here he captures Texas. The Texas we think we know really, really well. I think obviously in part two we're going to talk about it. He kind of talk. He's kind of capturing more the Austin, Texas, or the kind of <laughs> the kind of cultural. Because you know we'll talk about it in part two. But you got the Schinerbach beer. You got yeah. you know the kind of uh, color. The you know there's a lot of color in Austin. A lot of bright popping colors and stuff. And call it the kind of a Mexican heritage influence on Austin, Texas, and stuff. But you kind of know when a movie's made in Austin. I mean, you just kind of know. I mean, death proof—you you can kind of tell. Uh, well, I think that yeah. I mean, death proof is a, is a completely different animal, though, yeah. too, because it's it's practically blowing the uh, the Austin yeah film geek community. It's using Austin as a character, and uh, I think too Hooper was one of the first people to do that. In my opinion, he was one of the first people to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I mean, the movie is a seminal classic. It's one of the great horror movies of all time um and it's almost inarguable even if you don't like it you cannot deny its influence over uh cinema history i mean it's it's amazing what it's done uh for movies and and what it what toby hooper and this group of uh, misfits kind of put together and every now and then you know movies come along like this you know halloween was another good example of, of something like that happening uh, Last House on the Left. Whether you you know whether your thoughts on that movie are positive or negative, it's it's the same thing. It's a bunch of kids saying we're going to make a statement, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. art has to have those kind of people. It has to have those kind of people to transcend and to move forward. Uh, so it gets into the transgressive cinema element, which I would argue this is transgressive cinema. Uh, this is pushing the envelope and pushing the envelope. It isn't always necessary. But I think pushing the envelope is a very – it's very important to all art, you, you could argue. Um, I'm sure you agree with that stuff. Well, I think that – yeah, and I think that – yeah. Uh, but I think that it's – you know, in terms of transgressiveness, it's it's very much uh, a, a film intended to shock just from its title alone. Yes. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I think that's part of what they were trying to do is he's, he's trying to shock all – audiences not just a audience not like a specific audience he's trying to shock everybody mm-hmm. um yeah so I, I think that and i think that in that in that uh, respect i think he succeeded 
Yeah. Uh, because there are people who, you know, they just hear the name uh, and they're just like, oh, well, they'll either turn their nose up at it or, you know, they want to dive in. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah. You know, the name of the game was to, was to shock, to kind of like rattle your cage. Uh, and, you know, getting a reaction like that is, is difficult enough. Yeah. Um, but being able to do it as well uh, as he does. I mean, anybody could, could, can throw a bunch of uh, gore on screen or can, you know, uh, you know, dead babies or whatever the fuck. I well, yeah. Pick your poison. Pick your poison for. Uh, well, not for only that. I mean, we've seen a lot more chainsaw gore after Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We've seen a hell of a lot more. Sure. Uh, from other filmmakers. Now he does. He does put his his foot down a little bit more in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. But then again, now the culture's changed. And so now we're in nineteen. Well, and it's also it's also it's also a different movie. I mean, I think I I still think that both of the movies are are kind of um are comedies in a way. Yeah. Uh, but, but part the, two is more one is way more overt. In, yeah, well, in that it's, respect. it's much more about the absurd. Sure, sure. The ludicrous. And of course, you know, then you get into that world of gore and comedy being very tied together with stuff like what Sam Raimi had done at that point and everything else. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is, this does have comedic moments. No doubt. This one does too. This one does have a level of nihilism to it that the second one doesn't have. Uh, well, maybe it does. I don't know. We, we'll talk about it when we talk about it. But well, I think it's yeah. It's a, the first one is about uh, the first one's about the death of uh, the hippie culture. The second one's about the dominance of the yuppie culture. Yes, yes. And, so in, in that respect, then yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I think this you know this movie's just it's a really important film. I, I can't really even. It, it is hard to review something like this. There's these films that, and for those who don't know, you know, Will, who's usually on the show and hasn't been on the show for a while. You know, this is his favorite horror movie of all time. It's very much uh, a pivotal moment in cinema history. Um, it, it, I would argue it's probably one of the 10 greatest horror films ever made. Um, I would agree with that, yeah. But I would also argue that it's one of the 10 most important films of the 70s as well. Certainly one of the most important American films of yes. the 70s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about, and still in my opinion, the greatest decade in cinema history. I would agree with that. And... This movie is in the conversation. There's no oh, doubt. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about. It. And then, and that's you know saying a lot for a horror film, because uh, you know it's a genre that's usually frowned upon, uh, even by cinema cinema scholars, but uh, and even by some horror fans. But this is uh, this is that important to the '70s, and it it really it changes the landscape. And you know, there's only a handful of filmmakers ever in the history of cinema who've been able to do that. So mm-hmm. that's that's. That's quite something. That's quite something. Uh, let's get into Maker Breaks, MVTs. All right. The Maker Break is uh, a break. Uh, no. Uh, it's the uh, Maker Breaks, the hammer time scene. I mean, come on. Uh, it is one of the great uh, shock sequences in horror cinema. Uh, it just it kicks open the door to hell, uh, and it gives us a glimpse of uh, what's waiting for us on the other side. Um and I think that's you know kind of the uh, the impact that it had and the impact that the movie had because I mean obviously and we we didn't even touch on this is that you know how much the uh, the movie is influenced or uh, based upon Ed Gein yes um, and certainly that's you know that that comes into play here uh, MVT I gotta go Hooper I mean you know say what you will mm-hmm. uh, this is one hell of an early movie uh, and I think it makes it all the more tragic in how he got fucked here. Um, much like Romero did with uh, Night of the Living Dead, although just in a slightly different way. Um, I think you would see uh, yeah. you'd see glimmers. 
The Romero one uh, is always such a and the Romero well, it one such a, it's such a mistake. Yes, it's such a it's such a blatantly uh, you know avoidable error that you're just like oh. <laughs> like that has but it happened. Yeah, that has to haunt you your whole life. It's like one yeah, of those right. <laughs> Why did I give up the fucking atom bomb? Um, so if only I had done X. Uh, so yeah, uh, but I mean I think that you would see kind of glimmers. Uh, of the brilliance of this movie in the rest of uh, Hooper's career, but I don't think he ever totally matched it. No, uh, or or did he? Yeah, well, um, he came close once, which exactly. I, I think we'll talk uh, about. <laughs> and uh, score for me on this one, uh, uh, eight point seven five. Nice, going, yeah. So. Uh, I can't argue with that. Make or break for me is also that uh, scene, uh, that first appearance of uh, Leatherface. It's uh. It's one of the cinematic moments in my life that has stuck with me my entire life. Um, again, like the touch of evil opening or like the tracking shot through the bar in Goodfellas or like so many shots from Citizen Kane or whatever, this movie is in the conversation with just that scene alone. It's one of the most important shots, I think, ever filmed. And it's funny because that tracking shot under her, that was all done by accident. That was They had 60 feet of track, and they were just like, I don't, I don't know, let's try this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the same thing as the, uh, as uh, uh, what's his face? Um, Ramey uh, and the, uh, the strapping the, the film, uh, the camera to a board to yeah. get that ghost shot, the yeah. ghost POV shot. Yeah, puts, uh, puts it on a board and then puts it on his wrist, I think, and then just goes through with yeah, a raft. Kind of... Yeah, and just kind of moves yeah. it side to side. And then Gaspar Noe had an orgasm and started making movies as well. And how about it? And the, the guy and that did Ankh saw how it. that turned out. <laughs> that, He's the word, French. The word transgression does not apply to French some filmmakers. Yeah, well. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they love to push that envelope. Um, people who think that the smell of it, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I totally agree with you. It's that scene. And uh, MVT for me is Hooper as well. It's his movie. It's his baby. And like you said, even though he kind of got screwed on the whole deal, uh I mean, he could have never made another movie, and he would have been important, and he would have been talked to in in uh, classrooms for the rest of his career, sure. uh, the rest of his life. Um, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, he did make more movies. Uh, you know, we've we've covered a few on here, so uh, my score is just a little bit higher than yours, man. This is a nine out of ten for me. It's one of the Sweet. great movies of the seventies, though. And uh, if you've never seen it, if for some reason you never have, maybe because of your aversion towards the idea of the chainsaw massacre. Uh, I would recommend you check it out. It is an intense viewing. That that there is intensity here, but if you're worried about gore, um, that is not something you need to worry about. But if you, you are, you see more gore on the 24-hour news cycle now. Yeah, you know, you see more gore on a TV show. You'll see more gore on a sitcom than you will on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see more gore in an episode of Friends. Not not more. Well, yeah, some more nightmare imagery, especially with that Friends reunion coming up. But well, um, yeah. zing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we are the we are all becoming part of a generation where we, for some reason, want reunions. I have no idea why that is, but that's that's the way people are by nature. Um, all right, that's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, again, normally we take a break, um, but Fuck we're not going to do that. that. Yeah, we're not going to do that because we can't. Uh, <laughs> we've been told no you oh, can't do that anymore us down. yeah you can't do that anymore it's against the rules um, what's funny though is Todd and I discovered these kind of transitions <laughs> on the uh, on this thing so 
Here we go. We'll go to, we'll go to the next uh, scene. Here we go. We'll go to our next. Uh, we're going to go take a break. Here it goes. All right. And we're back. See, that's how quick it was. How about that? Wow. That was like a fart in a church pew. Yeah, that was. Really was. How about this? How about this one? One second. Now boarding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. This is, uh, yeah. You know, what do you do? What do you do, man? Uh, The world is is made to hold you down. But at least we have fun doing this, right? Uh, Yeah, there we go. A little comedy for you. How about that? Put the needle on the record when the drum beat goes like this. (laughs) All right. Anyway, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Pardieu, as the French say. Mm. Now, this movie has an interesting history. Um, let me get into the uh, the basics of the movie here first. Let me uh, pull up the information because obviously I don't keep it all in the Rolodex that is my brain all the time. But this movie is clearly going for more of a commentary on culture itself. Um even so far as to say the poster is uh, mocking the Breakfast Club poster mm-hmm. and cinema at the time, which just repulsed Toby Hooper. But one of the things that I always remember about this movie was when it came out, man, for horror buffs, for guys like us, for guys who loved horror movies, this thing was, you know, it was the second coming at the time. It was like, oh my God, they're actually making a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Master. Can you believe this is happening? And, uh, We'll get into kind of my experience with that uh, after the fact. So anyway, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, uh, 1986, directed by Toby Hooper. Um, a radio host is victimized by the cannibal family as a former Texas marshal hunts them. That's what the plot synopsis here says on IMDb. Uh, this one's much more of a Western. This one's much more of a uh, exploitation kind of jam-packed, even arguably an action movie in some ways. And when I say that, I mean good guy versus bad guy. White hat, which uh, Dennis Hopper, I don't know if you remember what color his hat was, but it was very white. Or very, <laughs> definitely very beige at the most. Yeah, uh, very and, khaki. Yeah, and uh, certainly there's a statement to be made there, too, when your hat is like that. And then, of course, you're fighting these other guys who don't wear a hat. Uh, well, arguably Jim Cedow does. He wears one of them grandpa hats that everybody loves. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, this one stars, uh, Dennis Hopper and you get Caroline Williams in here playing stretch, which is a very memorable performance. Uh, no doubt. Uh, a lot of screaming again. Jim Cedow comes back. Bill Mosley makes an appearance here. And really, this is the first movie I really remember Bill Mosley from, I, uh, for me personally. Um, and he makes an impact, uh, certainly whether it's a good or a bad impact. I'll leave that up to people's taste. But he, a lot of his lines in this movie are improvised, and they are incredibly memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, simple lines, too, like dog will hunt. Uh, Get that bitch letter face, dog will hunt. You know, just very simple stuff like that. And, uh, of course, you know, my favorite personally is lick my plate, dog, you dog dick, which is. That is as Rob Zombie uh, uh uh, well, a line as Rob Zombie never wrote. Yeah, Zombie. I mean, he obviously he loves this movie. I mean, you can hear some of this stuff in his music. He cuts some of this, uh, some of the quotes out of this movie into his music. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure uh, Dog Will Hunt is definitely in one of his songs, either in a White Zombie song or a Rob Zombie song. I do believe it is. Yeah. Yes. I don't know which one off the top of my head. 
I do enjoy the Rob Zombie music a little bit more than Todd, but uh, not much more. It's a very one note, and I got to be in the mood for a bunch right. of yeahs and a bunch of uh, yeah. t- techno, uh, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> Techno metal. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if that's well, but but I think that, but I think that Mosley really he does make a hell of an impression. He does. Uh, he does. The, the chopped off character. And he does. And one of the, one of the, one of the wonderful things is that he's as gruesome in appearance uh, as Leatherface is. Yeah. I think this is also one of the best. This is easily for me the best Leatherface uh, mask yeah. uh, in the entire series. So we should talk about that. This has got special makeup effects by Tom Savini. So Savini comes yes. on board. Yeah. And he's working on this one. So this one, if you're into Tom Savini stuff, which means uh, graphic but physical uh, makeup, then this is the main Texas Chainsaw Massacre film for you because the mask yeah. is much better, the kills are better, the bloodletting, everything is very gross here. And it's very Tom Savini, you could say. I mean, it, it, it feels like a Tom Savini uh, makeup movie. It does feel like that. And I and I always forget. It's one of those weird things where when I watch this, first two things I forget: one that it's a canon film, mm-hmm. and two that Tom Savini is the makeup supervisor. I always forget those things, and then I'm always pleasantly surprised when the credits come up and I see those things. And arguably, as important as the tracking shot and the initial death in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. I love the opening to this movie so much. This one in particular. Well, it's longer than you would think. It is. It's it's but it's uh it talk it's, about it's extended more than you think. Yeah. yeah, talk about a study in the macabre and how to have fun with a character and a ridiculousness. I mean, this movie I love the opening of this thing so much. I really do. Uh, the yuppies are completely obnoxious, but the way they do the puppetry with the Nubbins character, which is a dead dummy that they carry around a lot. Uh, Mosley carries it around a lot in the second half of the movie. But they use Nubbins in the beginning, too. I mean, it is a visual treat, the way they do that. And again, it's all a matter of accident, right? They say, look, we'll play chicken with these rednecks. Yeah. And yeah. and it kicks off this insanity. Um, but what's fun here is you get the kind of secondary nature of the movie, which is we have a character... Dennis Hopper's playing here. Uh, is he a U.S. Marshal, I guess? Is that what he is? Or I do believe he's, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's hunting down uh, the people who killed his nephew, which we find out was Franklin from the first film, uh, the wheelchair-bound Franklin. And uh, he's got a, you know, a hard-on for revenge. So we get a revenge film here going. And then... The Caroline Williams aspect of the film, which is very fog-like in a way, because the DJ kind of being involved in the yeah, yeah. in the in the uh, the muck, so to speak. She's fun because you know she's just trying to do her job, and then she gets caught up in this, and she's got L. Is it L? Is it LG or L? Yeah, LG. Yeah, yeah that's his name, right? Mm-hmm. LG, uh, who works for Lou Perryman. Who was working? Who worked on the first film? I think. I think he was a friend of Tony. Uh, he was uh, one of the uh, uh, camera yeah. Uh, people. Yeah, but he's really good in this. He's uh, really good in this film. Uh, to be honest with you, he does a really good job, and he spits a lot of loogies, and they're gross. He does like spitting. Yes. Well, they, I mean that to me, no more absurd a moment in this than when he's getting hit in the head with the hammer, and he takes the time to spit while he's getting hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, to keep the comedy alive, so to speak. Um, but. Their relationship is kind of a nice, kind of honest relationship. His is a relationship of wanting, uh, 
Um, he finds uh, Vanita Stretch Brock, which I didn't even know her name was Vanita Brock, for Christ's sake. I'm looking at the credits because <laughs> they never say anything like that. They just call her Stretch. Right. Um, and his, you know, yearning to be a part of her life, maybe in a more deeper way, and her kind of, you know, I care about you, but not that way. It's, you know, it's it's kind of a bittersweet romance. And yeah, yeah. It, it works for the movie. It gives it a nice added element because I think if it doesn't have that and it doesn't have the Dennis Hopper character with this need for vengeance, and evidently there was another angle that was actually cut out of the movie, which was that Hopper was the illegitimate father of the stretch character. Right. I think they yeah. took that and out. And that, that's not in here. No. And I think it was smart to take it out. I think it would have been one step too far. But I think you have to have those two elements, the revengeance angle and the kind of bittersweet romance angle to make the complete insanity and absurdity of the three amigos of Jim Seedow, Bill Mosley, and Bill Johnson working together <laughs> because they are so over the top that if you don't have some foot in some sort of reality here, this movie is, for lack of a better term, and again, I do enjoy this filmmaker's films more than Todd, it is a Rob Zombie movie at that point. It is, except, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, okay, so the, the Rob Zombie thing, I mean, you you clearly see the influence of this thing on him, but aesthetically as well as yeah, the whole right from the, the white trash shit kicker department. House of a Thousand I mean, Corpses that, that, is essentially a remake yeah, of this, in my but opinion. But here, here it, I think that here at least, I mean, the characters are not as desperately grating mm. uh, as they are in a Rob Zombie movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where the disconnect is for me, because when you have the Chop Top character doing a lot of what he does here, I mean, he's essentially the same character as the oh. the firefly that he plays in the the zombie I, movie i have a i have a theory okay where your disconnect I am, is i want to hear it i think there's a level of this sounds bizarre but i think there's a level of innocence to chop top and leatherface okay that i think sucks you in i don't think any rob zombie character that i can think of has any level of innocence i think they're all right. in i think they're all in and i think I think that's the disconnect. That's that's my opinion of why you get disconnected. That's a good point. That's a good point. Because let's be honest, I think one of the best things about this movie is Cedal Mosley and Johnson together. They are this weird kooky family yep. that love each other uh in the way only they can. You got two uh for lack of a better word mentally challenged kids and for lack of another word a completely disturbed father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 the insanity, but if you think about it, man, they really care about each other. There's a lot of moments in this movie where he's yelling at them, but at the same time, he's really proud of them. Yeah, uh, and he, you know, he does things for them, and they do things for him, and it's a really, really, really weird family dynamic that I don't think the Rob Zombie movies, as much as he tried, especially with the the trilogy he made, he tried to make that a family thing, but it really just comes off as three disturbing characters hanging out with each other it doesn't really it never feels like well, yeah family. but but again i mean it, it's yeah i think that that's that's definitely part of what it is is i mean i think going back to my my uh correlation to, to harmony corinne and zombie is that you know yeah it's, it's, it's zombies very much looking at it like a freak show <laughs> hey let's go look at the freaks hey look at all the freaky yeah. look at these freaks look at them doing freak shit uh, and, ha, 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 yeah, oh, that's so fucking freaky uh, yeah and there's a level whereas, about it there's a, this is is not that it's you know it's yeah it's certainly it's certainly taking them as as a little bit more rounded let's yeah. say there's a level of adoration in zombie but i think the difference is hooper yeah. com cooper completely adores these three characters 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he shoots them lovingly, and he gives them great moments. Now, that sounds gross or sounds crazy because these are killers, but it's a comedy. It is a comedy. For years, I used to argue that it's not a comedy, but as I've gotten older, I realized very easily that the movie is 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 dealing with the absurd. None of this stuff <laughs> yeah, should exist, yeah. right? Even the puppet, even the puppeteer work in the beginning with uh, Leatherface and the Nubbins d- dummy and the chainsaw and the dancing on the back, and of course, you know, don't forget that the truck is driving backwards at a high rate of speed. Right. None of that stuff is reality. It's right. all cinema for cinema's sake. Right. Well, I mean, and okay, so a couple things here. So, I mean, yeah, the first movie was definitely grounded in reality where this is much more of a cartoon. And I think that that's evident when we're introduced uh, to the uh, the the first victims, the, the two yuppies, you know, yes. one of whom has the grossest teeth, this side of Willem <laughs> Dafoe and Wild at Heart. Um, yeah, they're pretty bad. <laughs> so, so yeah, these guys are irredeemable, right? They're they're the type of film jerkoffs who who like irritatingly cackle and and, and you know, and and uh, at, at shit and and you know that the the dumbest dumb fuck wouldn't even find a little bit amusing, but these guys find it hilarious. But this this does allow, I think, for an extremely um, uh, for an extreme film uh, and a well done intro to Leatherface and, and the and the family. But that being said. I, I've always thought that the original was also a comedy, which I kind of mentioned uh, previously. Uh, it was just played straight. So, you know, a, a family who turns to cannibalism because the local slaughterhouse closed uh, and they put human meat in their roadside barbecue is, is comical on its face. Um, but I think that, you know, with the original, at least we just bought into it as a horror film uh, because they weren't uh, they weren't really grinning uh, at the, the audience. And I think part of the difference is... Uh, uh, and their approach to humor, these two movies, uh, stems from when they were made. Uh, so in 74, I mean, and, and again, we touched on this a bit in the in the first review. America was in a recession. It was reeling from Vietnam, the end of the whole hippie movement. Uh, so the original movie is uh, is sparse uh, in a lot of ways, uh, budgetarily as well, uh, and much more, you know, cynical and fatalistic. And part two uh, was in the excessive boom time of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the tone reflects that as well. It, it's colorful and big and over the top. And I think that that's kind of the, the differentiation point uh, there is is very much uh, cultural uh, and uh, historical. And I think that's why, uh, you know, I think that both of them are, 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 are definitely comedies. Uh, it's just a, a question of uh, degrees and how, um, how wry... I guess uh, would be the best way of putting it. How wry they are being about it uh, to the uh, to the audience. Um, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, no. I, I all these things I agree with. Um, the The interesting thing about this movie is it's it's it sets itself up very simply. Okay, mm-hmm. it's got some great comedy bits like we talked about. One of them is uh, the lady pulling the tooth out of the chili, which is gross. Um, teeth play. Teeth Funny, play if, a very... you, if you've ever if you've ever bitten into a hamburger and you've had that hard thing. Oh man, that kind of you that you bite into and you're just like and your stomach rolls over just a little bit and you're like, what the fuck was that? Well, if you eat meat in general, any kind of meat, sooner or later you're going to have that experience. Uh, oh yeah, that's something you 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 buy into. You won't have so. it with scrapple though. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of like it. Always kind of reminds me of like uh, so. My daughter helps me make eggs a lot, and I have oh, to okay. watch. I have to watch her when I'm making scrambled eggs because I have to watch her because she'll leave bits of the shell in there. 
because uh, uh, okay. she's you know she's learning how to crack eggs and stuff, and she's not sure. you know she's not real. You know, you get better. At that. That's something that comes with age. It's it's a it's that an is an art. Yeah, it's an art to hit that. You know, I mean, I'm good enough now where I can hit it on the ball once, crack it with one hand, move on to the next egg, no shell. Look at you, Emil. But or she, Emerald. <laughs> but she, you know, cracks it a couple times, so it's starting to shatter now, and now she sticks her thumbs in and cracks it open, so there's a chance for debris. Sure. And of course, with that, you get the inevitable. Damn, these eggs are good. Oh, that was eggshell. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always a grim reminder that uh, you know the meat texture. No, there's nothing fun about a crunchy, a crunchy in your meat. Nah, that, that sounds nah, like nah, nah. sounds nah. like some kind of porno film or something. Uh, yeah. Well, if Joe D'Amato was still around, it yeah. would probably have been one of his. Oliver Reed would say, "You got crunchies in your meat." Crunchies. <laughs> 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 oh, good old Ollie. Yeah. Um, but this one is the best way to describe this movie to me is it's loony. Yeah. And yeah. and 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 that's a compliment. I'm not saying this is a negative thing. I think this is a a wonderful loony trip through the macabre. And I say that because the macabre has that word to me symbolizes horror as delicious. Mm-hmm. As as something that you're setting down to have some fun with. So the first time I saw this movie, saw it in the theater, was, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. Super disappointed because it wasn't my Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Okay. So right. this is one of those examples in life where you sometimes have to give something time to understand it. And people say all the time, hey, I shouldn't have to do work to like your movie. I should like it the first time, blah, blah, blah. I call that total bullshit i uh, yeah i don't i don't 100 percent agree with that yet. i don't agree with it at all uh because i don't think anything makes art better than time because you can actually come back and look at it with more of a clear head now mm-hmm. i do think movies if if they want to make money i think it's very important that they work the first time but if they don't want to make money or if they don't care or even if they do want to make money Sometimes when you go back and look at a film, you see the reality of it. I guarantee you some of your childhood favorites, for those of you out there who don't rewatch your childhood favorites, go back and watch some of your childhood favorites. You might have a profound experience of, wow, that really wasn't as good as I thought it was. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or you might have the other experience, which is that is even better than I remember being. And that's the great thing about cinema in particular, I think. Cinema and comic books and, and novels really have the ability for us, and music even, there's a lot of music I like now that I did not like as a kid. Um, these things have the ability to grow on us, and that's one of the great things about art. I think I, you know, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, as time's gone on, as a 48 year old man, I really appreciate that I can go back. So this film was the second time I saw it was on VHS, and I remember telling everybody there were some people that in this group of kids we were watching it with. I don't know, I was 15 or 16 by this point. And I remember telling them, oh, yeah, it's not as good as the first one, blah, blah, blah. We all sat there and we watched as a group of folks, a group of kids, and we laughed and guffawed and have the had a great time. And I was like, ah, this is what this is about. Right. I got well, it all wrong. Okay. Here's here's the thing, and here's an analogy that I'm going to make because I kept thinking about this while I was watching this thing and, the, and this, this whole uh, dichotomy between the first movie and the second movie. Um is I was watching this thing and I kept thinking of, uh, God help me, uh, Escape from L.A., uh, which is a film that I absolutely loathe. I uh, have said it publicly and often and will your, continue to. It's your army of the dead. 
It is my army of the dead. Yes. Um, I don't. And, for for and, the record, I don't hate it, but uh, <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, Escape from L.A. is essentially the same sort of idea as this is, as Evil Dead Two is. Mm. Uh, it's taken the the first movie, basically mm-hmm. doing the same exact premise and yeah. making it into a comedy. Yeah. Problem is, Evil Dead Two and Texas Chainsaw Two work very very well. Escape from L.A does not you know uh, the other angle to that too is sometimes be careful what you wish for i remember folks well yeah really wanted that and, and, and we all love snake plissken right i mean me yeah. and you let's be honest me and you love snake plissken oh big time but he came back and escaped from la and as much as we love snake plissken as much as we were so happy to see him yep. we were looking around at other people in the theater going I'm sorry, guys. This is really embarrassing. Because that wasn't Snake Plissken to us. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was that. Well, you know, Snake Plissken is. I mean, he's he's not that kind. He's not a. Uh, he's not Shecky Green. It was a derivative. Uh, and it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was. It was a. Uh, uh, a Snake Plissken pastiche. Yeah. A pale uh, imitation. Yeah. Yes. Even though all of the players are the same. Yeah. It's it's crazy um, when I see those two films because Kurt Russell is so assured as Snake Plissken in the first film. And yeah. the second film, he is so Kurt Russell trying well, to remember it, it, what it was like thing. to play Snake Plissken. <laughs> that's exactly right. In the first one, he's Snake Plissken. In the second one, he's playing Snake Plissken. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's a big mistake. Yeah. And that's that's what I kept thinking of when I was watching this movie and, and, mm. and thinking about how the reaction to it was. So so you have uh, to you have to think about that too. You know, you you wonder if they would have brought Gunnar Hansen back. Right. You have to wonder. Well, I think the, I think the Bill Nelson does a, a pretty good job. Oh no 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 no, no 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 no! Honestly, I really think he does a great job as Leatherface. Yeah. There is a scene in this movie, so let's let's get into this, okay? Okay, sure. It is one of my favorite horror movie scenes of all time. Uh-huh. This this movie is not one of my favorites of all time in the horror world, but I, I do think it's really really good. Mm-hmm. But there is a scene in this movie where Hooper decides to interject sexuality. Mm-hmm. Into the Leatherface character, and it is the most awkwardly brilliant sex scene. I mean, it is a fucking masterstroke, in my opinion. Yeah. Pardon the yeah, pun. Yeah. It is so good that I cackle, I laugh, I get the chills talking about it right now with you. Well, it's something. It's something that the first film never played upon, mm-hmm. even though it was obviously there. Yes. And, you know, it could easily. You know, they could have easily. Uh, you know, gone down this route and didn't. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But then they they just took it and they they took the ball and they fucking they kicked it. They punted that fucking thing like half yeah. the field. Yeah, it's an it's, it's a, the, again it's a transgressive moment, but it is so sure. brilliantly done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I love that. I love that so much. I mean, it is again, it's awkward if you if you're sitting there watching it with a a child, perhaps your child, or even your wife or girlfriend or significant other, whoever that might be. And yeah. then I used to watch in this kind of cinema. You're going to look over at them and be like, "Ooh, uh, <laughs> sorry, this is a this is you know this is the well, death wish then, rape moment. This is the yeah, moment." Oh yeah, and then and then and then there's there's uh there's this there's this odd there's this odd way that uh, Caroline Williams and Bill Nelson play off each other, uh, where you know on the one hand she's running and screaming and shrieking. And then she'll turn around and just be like, you know, kind of be like this fucking weird, like actual girlfriend to this guy, mm-hmm. the way that she talks to him. Because, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of one of the big angles of the movie uh, is that, you know, Leatherface, you know, has a, 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 a thing for uh, 
for stretch. Uh, and and she's like, you know, she's half like playing into it to like keep him uh, appeased, and half like you, you kind of buy that she's actually like thinking that she's his girlfriend. Right. Uh, it's it's so weird because she'll <laughs> she'll just turn it on a dime. Yes. Yes. Um, and it just you know it, it it's because it just it comes completely out of nowhere. It's a it's a weird um, it's a weird survival tactic. Right. And right? It, it's something she goes back to over and over again and it's yes it can yeah. almost be misperceived as misogyny or sexuality in a perverse way saving her skin but it kind of pays off but because of the ending of the movie which yeah. again is a, an exclamation point of a it's almost a middle finger the ending of oh, the movie big time. Yeah. <laughs> to me it i mean that's how i read it i read the ending as a you know this is an fu statement uh not only to just uh, masculinity, but also to, you know, horror fans in general sometimes. Yeah. Because it is notoriously a masculine, or at least it was. I don't know if it is so much anymore, but it was notoriously a, a masculine genre. And arguably, uh, not to get political, uh, but I mean, I think you agree with me, arguably a misogynistic genre, like so many of those kind of genres can be sometimes. I mean, film noir for a long time was that way too, until people realized, oh, wait a minute, the women actually have the power in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes it just takes time to realize that people are actually making the opposite statement. Well, that, I mean, and, and that's the thing is, is what's the cultural lens mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it's being looked at? I, I mean, it's not necessarily that it's not necessarily that these things are, are there or being overt or any of that kind of shit. Yeah. It's, you know, how is how is the culture looking at it? I mean, I'm sure. I, and, and yeah, again, not not to get political because I'm just way too fucking tired this morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, how many of these movies uh, if they were if they were released into into the culture today, would people just turn their nose up and be like, "Well, how come there's not this? How come there's not that? How come this? They, 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 they yeah. cancel it." Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, "Dude, it's a fucking movie." Yeah, I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, the politics should come out naturally. The good, the good, the they, good yeah, films they should be. You, they yeah. shouldn't. Yeah, they shouldn't be like that scene in the first movie where you yeah. get smacked in the head with a mallet. It well, should yeah. never be that way. Yeah. Ever, ever, pa- ever, ever, ever. Yeah, Pasolini. Uh, that film I watched last week. You know, the Defoe Ferrara film. You know, Pasolini once said all films are political. Sure. Because they are every every piece of art. Because that every is made, every single person that makes a movie has a political yeah. bent to them. Any any piece of art is political. It just depends on how deep you want to look. Sure. Uh, but you shouldn't have to. You should never have to be told. You should be able to figure that out on your own. That and again, exactly. I'm not going to yeah. get into all this again. I agree with you. I'm yeah. not going to get into all this this morning and everything else. But that's the problem with art now to begin with. People want statements. The difference is statements have been being made for years. People just never fucking paid attention to them. Now they want you to hit them over the head with it. And, and that turns me off in the yeah, biggest way. It's a cultural it really, really appropriation does. issue that really. And that's why. And that's why going back to going way back to the beginning of the show, why I didn't like Shadow in the Clouds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I understood. It's, just, it's it's smacking you over the head yeah. with this shit, and you're yeah. like, "Come on, man! Yeah. I'm a fucking adult." Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. I can see that. Um, the, uh, the but anyway, go back to that sex scene and the way it plays out throughout the movie. It's really mm-hmm. genius, and because I remember when I started watching this movie, the first time I saw it again, I was disappointed. The second time I saw it, I saw it with a crowd of guys, and I was like, oh, "Okay, now I get it." And now I own it. I still own the DVD. I've never upgraded the DVD or anything else. I broke the DVD out for this uh, episode of the show. The DVD still looks great, by the way. I mean, it still looks amazing. 
It's one these 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 Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. These two, anyway, these first two. It's, it's something. I mean, I'm sure the HD versions of these look amazing, but it's one of these things where. And I hate to say this because I I hate it when people say it, but it's one of these things where it's like you know I don't think I need an HD upgrade of that. But it, the truth is, uh, uh, I don't know what HD would. I guess for this film, HD would bring some pop and some clarity to the the massive set at the back end. Which, by the way, the set, the family set, is if anything, uh, if if there's a major influence on Rob Zombie. <laughs> That whole Matterhorn slash Texas Chainsaw World set yeah. is the Texas Battleland. I think it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's amazingly. It looks like uh, Rob Zombie was born there. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, we we've talked a lot about Rob Zombie this week. Um, How about it? Might have to pick another zombie film for now the show. Now we don't have to pick another zombie. Movie. <laughs> oh, whoops! You may have spoke too too late. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have any plans for one right now. Um. But I think that, but so let's get a couple more things and then I'll kick it over to you because we're running a little long and, and I have to urinate like a horse, uh, <laughs> uh, like you wouldn't believe. But a couple other things. Dennis Hopper is clearly having fun here. Now, this is Dennis Hopper oh, yeah. in the middle of the 80s. He's recovering. Um, he, he can't get a job. Uh, I think he directs Colors. Right around this time, or right before, or right uh, after, would have been yeah, right around here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's starting to make a bit of a comeback, and of course he would go on to in the early '90s like play a bad guy in like every other movie and kind of re- yeah, re- Super Mario Brothers, uh, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would reinvent himself. Um, Dude, he is he is one of the great on-screen cigarette smokers. Period. Oh my god. The, end the, of list. End of, yeah. Dennis Hopper, one no. of the great cigarette one of the smokers best. on screen. I've never. I, I, I never have I wanted he to smoke a cigarette. He lights one up, and I just fucking I'm sitting there jonesing. Oh yeah, even even me who I've I've been done smoking now for thirty years, twenty well that's twenty five time for me too yeah. twenty five plus years. But when I watch Dennis Hopper smoke, I want to smoke. Oh yeah, big, yeah. big. Him and Chow Yun Fat, you're just like oh man, I want. Oh man, Yun Fat's really good at it too, man. Yeah. And so's yeah. uh, what's his name? Is it Anthony Wong? Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. you give me a pair of sunglasses and a pack of smokes, and I'm on. <laughs> 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 but there's just there's just some guys who have that ability and again yes. we shouldn't just say with the smoking though but dennis hopper has a natural again it's like the angelina jolie thing i talked about earlier when the, in the beginning of the show he has a natural charisma so yes. come to find out behind the scenes that dennis hopper before every scene he shot he would spin himself in circles <laughs> like 20 or 30 times yep uh, and so every time he would open a door or anything he looked like he was about ready to fall over that's because he was <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. kind of a genius little move he did. Kind of a genius little move that to do that because it gives him this kind of off center, uh, off balanced uh, character trait, which honestly his character is supposed to be, and he does a great job doing that. Yes, um, yes. But he's he his character is vengeance, and he's fun. He's fun. I think yeah. he's fun. He's ridiculous, completely and absolutely ludicrous as a character. You know, dueling. Yep. He has these two chainsaw holsters, and he has the big chainsaw. Yep. And he's singing biblical hymns, and he's he's being loud and obnoxious, and he's overacting out the ass. But it all works so well. Yeah. Um. And well, it's a, it's mean, a genius performance, really. Yeah. Well, and him and him and Williams are really good and really good together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting how, um, Hooper is this man who's already haunted. He's already crazy and obsessed, and stretches. 
uh, you know, she's piqued, I think, by what she knows and gets drawn into this madness. And then that's kind of the journey. Uh, and the two characters, they deal with these things in very different uh, specifics, but the same generalities. Like uh, Hopper, you know, he wants to meet the Sawyers on their terms, and that's why he buys chainsaws rather than guns. Um, you know, which is just, again, it's absurd on its face. Why the fuck would you bring a, a knife to a gunfight? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, of course it's also funny just on the, the, the premise and mechanics of it and, you know, watching, uh, the, uh, the, the shop owner, uh, practically come watching, uh, Hopper go at it. <laughs> Uh, at the that uh, tree yeah. out in front of the that's the other uh, sexual the scene. Is, is, is this it, you know with his new phallic weapon is it's sublime and it's bonkers. Yeah, that's the other sex. Um, that's the other sex scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I I really like how these two these two characters kind of uh, you know they they do this thing like one's already nuts, one's going nuts. Uh, but they're both centered on uh, this obsession with the uh, the Sawyers uh, and this this need uh, for. Um, uh, if not, if not vengeance and, and closure, uh, then certainly just, um, truth, I guess, maybe, uh, in a way, uh, if you wanted to look at it that way, but yeah, I found that interesting. No, 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 I, I think so too. But of course it brings a, it brings a level of, you know, religion and humanity to the, to the whole thing sure. too. And I, sure. I think sure. that's important. Uh, one more note and then I'll hop off of this and let you okay. kind of go All for right. a minute. Um, as much as I love, now this is going to sound, and it is a bit of a criticism. You know, it's it's a total criticism. One of the things I both loathe and love about this movie, I really appreciate everything they put into Texas Battle World. <laughs> I think it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, but I, for some reason, do not think it's necessary. <laughs> uh. It's one of those things where I feel like Hooper had some money because, you know, the cannon guys would throw some money at some stuff mm -hmm. and they went bonkers with it. And I think it's a masterpiece in and of itself as a set design, but I don't think it's necessary to the gist of this movie for me. I don't think it's no. Uh, well, it's not necessary. I have a real conflicted relationship. Yeah, I think I think that. But here's the thing is, I think that it works because. Uh, it kind of it kind of opens up that whole. I mean, the cartoonish aspects of it, mm. uh, the ludicrous aspects of it, really just kind of okay. focuses on. Well, of course, these people are going to live mm -hmm. in this place. Yes, of course, they're not just going to be in a shitty, rundown house on the on a you know off a off a dirt road in the middle of Texas. Yeah. of course they're not going. Yeah. Of course, they're going to be in the most insane, cartoonish, uh, you know, odd out of the way fucking run down places they can as they can find uh that's the way that i kind of look at it but i get what you're coming i get where you're coming from yeah, because yeah. It, it certainly it certainly does ramp up i have uh the, it, the level of absurdity yeah it's just a it's, a it's just a it's a conflicted relationship i again right. I, is what i say i both loathe it and i love it i mean it right 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 every time it happens though i'm like oh, i don't really know if you need this but then i'm like totally happy that it's there but yeah, it always yeah, feels yeah. like it always feels like that moment when i'm watching the movie where i feel like Okay, this this is the movie part of the movie. I don't I don't right. know. It's hard for me yes. to explain, but it's just well, it is it is certainly yeah, it is certainly a very a very um, uh, show offy yeah. sort of uh, thing. A movie moment for the sake of a movie moment type of thing. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. No, no, I, I get what you're coming. And I don't, I don't. Th it's not an insult to Hooper. It's just more of a. I don't know. I I I, I think it's a bit of an ill decision to do that. Right. 
But uh, I guess what it comes down to is that really kind of reflects more on my personal taste than it really does. Right. Well, on... and, 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 and yeah, I mean, and if you're going to if you're going to, you know, crank everything up as this movie does, uh, then it only makes sense for me mm-hmm. to just, you know, do that as well. So, yeah. I, I mean, I don't I don't I definitely don't have as much of a problem with it as you do. But yeah. I, can, I get where you're coming. From. I think the argument could be made that, you know, he's also, you know, the 80s was the big decade, right? Everything's. Well, yeah, be big. That, that's yeah, that's part of it. Certainly is because, yeah, look at look at these people. They live in what is essentially. Uh, as big as a mansion, even though it's you know dirt floors. Yeah, and then and, you got uh, the you got the cannon guys financing it, so you know the cannon guys are going to be like, oh yeah, go big, go big, go show me this uh, <laughs> thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. bigger, bigger. You can just see them offset, just bigger. And and we're cutting a million dollars off your budget. <laughs> yes. By the way, did I mention that before? I did yeah. mention that. Yeah, cut all that out. That's not going to be done. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I really have a great time with this movie every time I watch it. This is as as great as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is uh, as a film to watch. This is the underappreciated, more entertaining, I would argue, uh, sequel. Right. That I think is much more rewatchable. That's not, uh, and I, I when I say that, I, I don't mean that as a slight against Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I just think there's a level of pessimism to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though it is comedic. I think there's a level of pessimism to it. And it might be the angle of, you know, the hippies, the hippie element. So whether you like hippies or not, some of the hippie diatribes or some of the philosophy, it actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, why don't we all just get along and everything would just go yeah. a lot smoother. So there, even- well, I think that's, that's part of, that's part of what it is, is that in the, in the first one, it was, you know, the guys who were making it were the victims. In mm-hmm. the second one, the guys who were making it were mocking the victims. Yeah. Well, I think because, we can all you know, agree they had, they had, because the whole, you know, because the whole yuppie thing. Yeah, we can all agree uh, the taken over and, the eighties yuppies were something we didn't like, and they and not only was that a cultural moment, but that, that the yuppie thing kind of stuck around for a long time. It it changed sure. its tune, but it stuck around for a long time. So sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I think we could all get behind that. We could all get behind this. You know, the hippie was somebody that wanted everybody to, you know make love not war whereas the yuppie is more make war not love yeah as as stupid as that sounds but it was more about dominance and i don't think i know me and i know you pretty well i don't think any of us are really comfortable with dominance i, I think that's a ugly trait in humanity period no but i'm up for a good spanking every now and then well different type of dominance right right <laughs> all right i'll kick it over to you uh okay so a couple of uh a couple of quick things here um so yeah the opening narration uh in this is uh a lot faster uh than the uh the john larroquette intro in the first one and i feel like the speed and how much info uh is trying to be you know crammed into uh this thing and trying to be delivered before the crawl ends i think speaks directly to the uh, the different approach this time around uh it feels like they're over explaining to make a joke uh, and this is right from the very beginning. So, I mean, you, you know what you're in for uh, with this thing. Um, and one of the other things that I like about this one is that, um, one, uh, it had the balls uh, to go this route with a sequel, kind of like what uh, Nightmare on Elm Street did, um, speaking again about the uh, the Craven uh, Hooper thing, um, even though Craven wasn't involved in uh, Nightmare 2. Um, two, uh this thing totally embraces uh, its gonzo nature and it runs with it. Uh, the Texas of the first film um, was really dry and really lonely and really barren. 
Uh, and this Texas, then, I mean, like you said, Austin, uh, it's populated with, you know, loud, uh, abrasive yahoos. Um, but I also think that, you know, I, I, I believe that two things can be true at once. So I think you can have, uh, both of those things. Um, Hooper's uh, eye for visuals is on display again in this one, I think, uh, as much as in the original. In fact, I think that uh, this one matches that uh, in compositions and in uh, technical aspects. Um, and in fact, I think it's it's better uh, in uh, in certain ways, like in terms of uh, dynamic lighting. Uh, so give it a lot of credit for that. Um, we talked uh, very, very briefly about uh, Jim C. Dow. And I got to say, just as a, a side note here, uh, I always felt like he came off as really genuine to me, uh, in these movies. Like you completely just buy that he is the guy on screen. Uh, and I think that goes a long way, uh, in selling, um, the idea of these, uh, of this, uh, this family to begin with and the whole, the whole premise that, uh, that undergirds the movie. Um, this one obviously, you know, really does not shy away from violence uh, like the first one and in fact uh i would uh, i would argue that um the scene in the uh, the radio station uh is disturbing for how whacked out it is on almost every level and for just how much uh the um the film keeps coming back to and lingering on uh bill mosley with his hammer um <laughs> uh, yeah and this this also includes uh, the uh, the sort of patented uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre death spasm leg twitch oh yeah uh, thing yeah uh, so we get that in there as well yeah that hammering scene goes on for an uncomfortably but it, it long keeps, time it keeps coming back to it, it keeps yeah coming back to it, it keeps yeah, coming yeah. back to it you're like Mike well God. it's it's, it's a almost, real it's almost like it's almost like the uh, that the the monkey scene in Faces of Death well it, I think that whole thing's a statement too because you got the sex scene with the saw essentially going on plus you got the hammering violence going on at the same time sure so you, well they're both they're both getting laid. Yeah, they're both getting laid, yeah. right? So yeah, um, uh, I I think that um, I don't know that this is my favorite of the of the series. Uh, I think that it is close to being the equal uh, of part one. Um, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest, and I was kind of surprised by this myself. Is uh, you know, up until now, uh, I've only ever seen this one once all the way through. Um, and that was when it came out on uh, on video, uh, and I completely forgot uh, all of the insanity uh, at the end in the uh, the amusement park, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which you know, uh, it just it, the way that it goes for it. And you know, I also noticed, uh, and this happens in both of the movies, is that you know the uh, the extensive uh, dinner scenes uh, that both of the movies have. Um, I noticed that, uh, or I I made a point of. Um, it's at these points in both movies that they tend to slow down. Yeah. Uh, and the, the pacing kind of, you know, it takes a little bit of wind out of the pacing on both of these movies. Well, they, they both go on too long. Well, I think they do. I, I think that they're, I think that they're key, they're key scenes, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, they definitely, uh, kill the pacing. Um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, definitely they could, they could be, uh, they could be shortened up. Grounded to a halt would be the words I would use. <laughs> that would be one way to put it. Yes. Um, and then, uh, you know, finally, I mean, I, I love, uh, Savini's grandpa makeup. Uh, I mean, that thing works so fucking well for me. Yeah. In fact, uh, I would yeah. put it, I would put it, the, I, I, I would put this up against, uh, Dick Smith's work on Dustin Hoffman and little big man. Oh yeah. No, that's um, really good. the teeth, are, that, the teeth know, are great too. 
Oh yeah, I think that. But I, I got to say that I think that uh, Savini really outdid himself overall with this one, mm. um, and uh, the production design is fantastic to boot. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's one of the films that I think it's weird. It's one of the ones in Savini's filmography that I think people forget about. I really, I really well, do they think do they... because it, because they're not used to they're they're used to Savini being a little more realistic in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, and that's why you know stuff like this or stuff like the Fluffy and Creep and uh, Creep Show. Mm-hmm. Um, that you're not expecting from him because, you know, because he's so entrenched in reality yeah. and realistic, uh, gore effects, yeah. but, you know, from his, uh, from his time in, uh, in Vietnam, right. uh, which is where that all stemmed from. Um, yeah, I wish he would have made more monsters because he has this kind of exaggerated, kind of bizarre monster design. Yeah, yeah. The fluffy, yeah, yeah. the no, fluffy I, I thing alone agree. is, yeah. I mean that, that creature is oh, amazing. It. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. It's not really based on any. It's kind of based on a a gorilla like character, but but it's not. Yeah. But it's not. It's this. It's Savini's yeah. version of that, which it kind of reminded me of uh, one of the uh, the one of the monsters from uh, a show called Terra Hawks. Oh yeah, uh, Terra which Hawks. I don't know if anybody's seen. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, the, uh, uh, I have seen that. Yes. Uh huh. I I own the the series on uh, DVD. So. How about that? Um, yeah, flaming thunderbolts. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> um. But uh, but yeah no I, I I dig this movie a a good deal uh, I still like it I still like it a lot yeah. uh, it's definitely it, it you know for all the similarities that it has to the first one uh, it has enough um, it has enough differences to make it distinct and certainly uh, it's a different uh, it's a different approach uh, right. and you could see you could definitely see Hooper's hand uh, at work behind uh, behind both of them. Totally agree. Uh, although there's there's definitely a lot more, um, let's say, intervention in this one. Obviously, with it being a bigger budget and all that sort of thing, and certainly the uh, the the Canon guys uh, always wanted to uh, Weinstein up the place. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, that's pretty much it. I think, we, I think we've uh, covered just about every base you can cover on this thing. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about these two films. Uh, like I said, you know, when you said it out loud, what you were going to pick, and I was just kind of like, yeah, man, why not? Let's do that. And then I was like, oh fuck, I really want to talk about the first one too. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, cool. Very cool. Um, all right. Uh, make or break for me. Uh, this, this one's a tough one. Cause I think there's a lot of great scenes in this one. Uh, I think the first one's got some good scenes too, but this one I think has better pieces, but is a lesser film. It's, it's, it's a weird thing, but right. there's so many great moments here. The introduction of chop top, uh, the introduction of Leatherface in the beginning, the sex scene with the saw, uh, and I have to go with the sex scene with the saw. It is such a bizarre creation and moment and what a brave performance from both actors to mm-hmm. go to go this route because it uh, talk about being you know it's like mark Wahlberg in uh in that one uh Shyamalan movie i talked about uh that one time where it, <laughs> i always felt like he just left him hanging out there all the time it was the one about the wind i can't remember the name of that movie uh now. the happening oh yeah the happening there he is that movie where he just kind of stands around and looks like he's just constantly sniffing farts uh, <laughs> well, who's to say he wasn't? Yeah. Shyamalan's like letting him rip off camera. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> but this one, you know, Hooper's caring for his two actors in the most raw and awkward moment, and it's it's very it's it's very bizarre. I mean, because Leatherface is getting off. I mean, he is. It is. It is an ugly O face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then of course like you said they're cutting to chop top too who's also getting off and mm-hmm. it's just it's it's very interesting and of course you know the mosley thing with the hanger and the plate and all this stuff it's so uniquely bizarre and crazy 
I just love the fact that he's lighting it and and peeling away at his scalp, like it's not a big deal. Like that would be a huge deal. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but anyway, it's it's just brilliant. But that, that's the, but the scene for me. MVT, I got to give it to Hooper again. Uh, even though I think Mosley's very memorable in this, and I think Caroline Williams is great in the movie. Uh, this is you know these these are Hooper's babies. These two movies. Uh, it makes me kind of wish he would have done the third one. I have I have an affection for Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3. I'm one of the few people I know who do. But I have an affection for this whole genre. I think, you know, what was it, like six months ago I told you? I went back and watched all those more recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre films after we yeah. did uh, New Generation or whatever. Yep, yep. And I went back and watched all those. And, and, I, and all of them have something. Um that I enjoy. And I do, as I've said before on the show, I do really enjoy the, the remake that the platinum dunes guys did. Um, I think you've talked about before that you kind of like that one too. I can't remember if you did or not. I know, I know will did, but I don't know if he was you or him, but I, I kind of enjoy that one. Uh, I like it because it's, it's very mean. It's very nasty. It's a very different version of, uh, the Texas chainsaw massacre. Uh, it's not as good a film obviously as these two, but it's still, I, f- I find it very entertaining. I think it's just the the legendary aspects or the as you said in the first review the fairy tale aspects of this you know you know innocent people walking into hell. Right. It's right. it's a great story element. It's a horror element that's been used over and over and over again and it's one that'll work until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Because we've all went on a trip or went somewhere and the whole fucking thing went sideways. Maybe not to the point where there was a guy with a skinned uh mask on and a chainsaw, but certainly Moments when you wish somebody like that would show up to get rid of somebody that you're around that you don't want to be around anymore. <laughs> uh, I've had a few moments where I wish Leatherface could break in. Um, <laughs> my score for this one's a little bit lower than the first one, but I still think this is a great horror film. And one of the great horror films of the 80s. I'm going to be honest with you right now. And uh, it's an 8 out of 10. I think it's a, I think nice. it's a, I think it's a brilliant movie. I really do. I think nice, some nice. of the pacing's a little ugly. Uh, and and I, I really have trouble with Texas Battle World. But... Uh, other than that, I think it's great. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so um, make or break. I'm gonna go with the opening attack. Uh, I think that it uh, it sets up everything about the film, including the plot, and it works well on different levels, um, as well as just you know visually. Uh, MVT. I'm gonna stick with Hooper uh, again. Um, I think that. Uh, yeah, he uh, he came as close as he was ever going to come uh, to matching the uh, the brilliance of the first movie. Um, I don't think he ever hit this height again in his career. Um, but uh, yeah, kudos to him for having these uh, at least two uh, shiny little gems in his uh, filmography. And score for me, uh, I'm definitely lower than the uh, the first one, but I'm I'm just a hair higher than you uh, on this one. It's eight point two five out of ten. Um, yeah. I do think that uh, yeah, it definitely uh, it definitely suffers a little bit. Um, I don't have obviously uh, as much of a problem with Battle World as you do, uh, but at the same time, <laughs> I do think that this is uh, these are as close to, to two uh, uh, this wonderful little uh, what what is it, diptych uh, mm-hmm. of, uh, of mm-hmm. movies uh, as you could have uh, this side of the Evil Dead movies, uh, and certainly this uh, blows the doors off the uh, Escape from New York, Escape from LA. Uh, duo yeah uh so there's that uh, um, yeah there's very few uh, that i can think i mean the one two punches like 
I mean, this one's a pretty great one-two punch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah. And there's there's there's, uh, a, and that's, yeah. there's a couple of them in horror history for me. I think I like Halloween, Halloween two quite a bit. I like Friday Thirteenth and Friday Thirteenth Part Two a lot. Well, Halloween two, yeah, man. You look at that one again. Uh, you look with critical eyes, and you're just like, ooh, that's yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we reviewed it's it a long a time step ago. Down. Yeah, we definitely reviewed it a long time ago. So I can't remember what I said about it, but I know I I've always been a fan of it. So right, right. Well, night, uh, Nightmare One, Two, and Three, I think, are is a great little uh, yeah. hat trick. Mm-hmm. Well, so. yeah. And then I start to think to myself, well, Halloween 1, 2, and 3 is a great little hat trick. If it's a little weird, and then Friday 13th Part 3 is not a bad little hat trick either. Yeah, <laughs> so, right? So it's it's weird when you go back and think about these things. That uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes the one-two punch is there. Sometimes it's there in a trilogy format. And it's it's just interesting to me that it it works that way. It really is. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. again, I saw this, and I thought to myself, wow, Hooper really stunk up the joint. He didn't get it. And then as time goes on, I go back and watch it, and I'm like, wow, Hooper was he was ahead of me. And I just I didn't see it because I didn't want to see it. Right. You know? Right. All right. That is the big show this week. We hope everybody enjoyed. Again, I will remind folks that uh, there is potential for the uh, GGTMC to go down, to go black for a while. Um. So uh, we will never go back. Get the get the episodes you want if you want them in your personal collection because it could happen at any moment. Uh, I'm exploring options and doing things, and uh, I probably won't bring music back to the show no matter what. At this point, I've had too many issues with it, and uh, it's just the way it is. Um. So if that was one of your favorite things about the show, then that was you know all of two minutes of the three hours we put out every week. So. <laughs> I'm sorry that, that if that was the case. <laughs> I'm sorry for everything else we put you through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, just know that you know my hands are tied, and it is what it is. And uh, thankfully, I have a very original piece of music to open the show with, uh, with Scott. And I actually have a closing theme as well I can use, which I've never used, um, but uh, could be using in the near future. So we hope you enjoy the show. Um, I don't know, Todd, I don't think I ever sent you what I was picking next week. You did not. Man, and I just realized that just now, on the air, and I apologize in advance. It was a hell of a week for me, but uh, what week isn't? But usually I'm pretty good about, you know, keeping you a week ahead, and I apologize for that. But uh, you know what you're watching, and I'm going to pick something. As we're on the air live, I'm going to look at my... (laughs) collection and uh jinkies pick something here <laughs> well i am picking um i'm gonna go back in time uh to the wonderful year of 1957 uh and jack arnold's the incredible shrinking man uh written and adapted from the uh the book by uh, richard matheson um and uh yeah it's uh it's a groovy little uh groovy kind of love Nice, nice. Uh, be nice to revisit this one. I haven't watched this one in, wow, it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, as Stained would say, it's been a while. Uh, it's, been a, it's definitely been a long while for me on this one because I, I just, honestly, I can't remember the last time I watched it in full. I've seen clips for, you know, you see clips in all kinds of documentaries and things. but Sure, sure, sure. I can't remember the last time I actually watched the film. Uh, I am going to go with, um, the original Planet of the Apes. Okay. 
<laughs> How's that for a uh, curveball? That's not out of the blue. <laughs> how, about, how about that? Are you, you, All right. Are you down for some? Sure. Yeah, let's do it, man. Planet of the Apes, the Incredible Shrinking Man. I can man. go ape. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I, I've kind of had a hankering to revisit that lately. So let's do it. Okay. Um, I almost picked Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, so you, you're lucky. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of Mark Wahlberg, is that the one? Is that the one where Johnny Depp has a British accent? Uh, no, that's not that. No, one. unfortunately, Mark Wahlberg almost has a British accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's smelling farts in that one too. He's really good, yeah, though, right? Acting wise. <laughs> what am I going to call that show? Planet of the Incredible Shrinking Apes. Yeah, Incredible Shrinking Apes. Maybe I, I don't know. The Incredible we'll Shrinking Ape Planet. <laughs> These double deuce episodes are easy because I can just call them. You know. The Texas double Chainsaw deuce. Massacre, Double Deuce. Uh, yeah. When we get back to the regular show, I'm like, oh, I got to get creative again. Damn it. <laughs> Fuck that. Yeah. All right. So that's what we're doing next week. The Incredible Shrinking Man, 1957. And I believe the Planet of the Apes is from 67. Seven, seven, somewhere in there. Sure. We sure it ain't 65. Uh, it could be. Anyway. Um, I know it's late 60s. We'll put yes. it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell. 68. Wow. Even later than we thought. How about it? So <laughs> Only five years before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Six years before Sex Chainsaw Massacre. How about that? Sex Change Massacre? It'll be, yeah, Sex Change Massacre. That's a good movie. Didn't we already do that one with <laughs> Sex Bomb or something, that one you picked? Uh, yes. <laughs> no, that was probably Microwave Massacre. All right. Those <laughs> pictures of my wife. <laughs> All right. With that, I will say adios. Uh, lick my plate, you dog dick. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.